Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. Midweek Motorsport. News, features, special guests, and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. Hello, everybody. Just after eight o'clock here in the UK. And yes, I'm back in the UK. Yeah. And so am I. And yes, you're up in London. Up in London is Tim Greer. Good evening, Tim. Good evening, John. Everything is right with the world. It well, is... not quite, but we'll come on to that <laughs> later. Okay, okay, fair enough. Series 14, episode 26. It is Midweek Motorsport. Uh, hello to Gav, who's making his apologies for absence. He's taking the boy to see the new Spider-Man movie following his SATS results. Uh, hello to Right Turn Lover. He says, I-, I hope I'm home by the time you start. I've jumped on the wrong bus. I'm now on the long way home. But I've been told this internet thing is mobile now. Uh, hello to Adam. Uh, Adam Crossfire wants to know if we're talking about Rich Energy tonight. Yes. And, and Mickey Heth says, um, has F1 need some big stickers to go over Rich Energy branding? Fancy sending them some RSL ones? Possibly. Uh, no more uh, tweets, I'm afraid, because it's such a packed show tonight. We sure? literally have no time for any more at the moment. We'll see if we can squeeze some in later on. But we've got uh, lots of news. We've got Nick Damon, Shea Adam, Declan Brennan, and a big interview. The big interview returns uh, with just Robin Liddell. Yep, just after nine o'clock tonight with Robin Liddell. But let's get straight on to the top story. Shuffle your papers and play the jingle. All the latest motorsport news from around the world. Midweek Motorsport. Time for a little bit of Formula One, which means we need our Formula One correspondent. And that is, of course, the one, the only, the irreplaceable, the irrepressible, and sometimes the quite irascible, Nick Damon. Hooray! I'm sure you myself for Formula One. Hooray anyway! Hurrah for Formula One! Hurrah for the British Grand Prix! Hurrah for everything! Um, yes. Nick Damon's actually not with us tonight, and that was pre-recorded on Monday uh, when he was available. Unfortunately, Tuesday, ev- actually. everything else that he said uh, in that uh, pre-record is now out of date. So that's the last we're going to hear from him on the subject of Formula One. He will be back for some bike news later We will on. do some not-out-of-date bike news a little later on. Uh, so the big news, uh, well, there's so much big news. We're going to start with McLaren. Okay. Uh, they've confirmed their Formula One drivers for the year 2020, and they Fernando Alonso. Not having Fernando back. Right. Uh, remember that he resigned, or maybe he didn't, and maybe there was a tweet about it, and maybe there wasn't, and who knows. Uh, Still a McLaren ambassador, though. That's very important. Yes, because he gets a little shiny badge for that, and some epaulets. Yeah. Uh, maybe a job in Washington. There's one going. Hmm. Moving on. Uh, Fernand, uh, Fernando Alonso not there, but uh, Lando Norris and Carlos Sainz Jr. will be. That's not really a surprise. I mean, that's the guys who are there at the moment. But what is a bit of a surprise is 
that they've been announced right now. Why do we think that's happened? Uh, this is basically McLaren telling all the drivers just sniffing around Lando, go away, he's ours. All the teams, yeah, all the yes. teams, yes. Uh, okay, so they, they have tied Lando Norris in. In fairness, Nick did say when I spoke to him on Tuesday that he thought Lando had been doing a pretty good job. And, uh, okay, fine. That's not the only Formula One story, of course. It's not because uh, Silverstone is going to retain the British Grand Prix for further five years starting next year. Uh, there was uh, a very, very, very small risk that this year's would be the last, uh, but now it won't be because there's going to be at least five more of them. What's interesting about that is Italy got a five-year deal. Um, uh, uh, Silverstone's got a five-year deal. It looks like the deal was ready to be inked and then there was all that talk of the London Grand Prix. Stuart Pringle has been quoted as saying um, that if there is an additional British venue, it will be additional and therefore the investment that they have got has been protected. So that's what they've been fighting over and that's why it's been delayed. It was announced... um, this afternoon? Two o'clock. Yeah, this afternoon. Earlier on this afternoon. So breaking news, kind of, type of thing. Um, uh, but can we talk quickly about British Grand Prix this weekend? Uh, very quickly. Uh, new surface, which nobody's raced on yet. Uh, everybody made the tyre choices a couple of weeks ago. Only uh, Danny Rick has got two sets of the hards. One set of the medium and ten set of the softs. Everybody else has only got one set of the hards. So I think that's interesting. Um, but it's a new surface. Apparently the surface itself should be roughly the same as the other one, but not quite as bumpy. But what, I mean, but it's still a new surface, isn't it? So I, that's going to be an interesting one. What's the weather forecast for the weekend? Is it going to rain? Uh, yes. Well, it's, but probably only on Friday. What, not Maybe on Sunday? Maybe on Saturday, but much after qualifying on Saturday. No, hang on a second. It's England, it's the summer, it's Wimbledon men's final, British Grand Prix, the Cricket, Cricket World, World Cup. Cup. Yes, surely, surely it, it's got to rain. It's a big day of horse racing as well, although horses don't seem to mind wet weather. No, indeed. Uh, to be fair, nor do Formula One cars. No, true enough. And it will be back to usual, even Nick admits this, it'll be back to usual and... Um, a Mercedes will win again because it's not at 700 metres and it won't be 40 degrees Celsius. So it's all back to back to usual. Uh, also today, Rich Energy has terminated its contract with Haas for poor performance. Yeah, who's poor performance though? Well, it's a good question because uh, they went on to say we aim to beat Red Bull Racing. Well, if you remember in Austria, uh, Kevin Magnussen in you know, Haas outqualified the Red Bull of uh, Pierre Gasly. Mm, but finishing behind Williams Racing in Austria is unacceptable. Yeah, they did finish uh, 16th and 19th, which put them behind Team Awful Williams. Sorry, yes. Team Awful Williams. Williams. That was a slightly shorter gap gap in Austria because it's a shorter track. Apparently, and also to, to celebrate the 50 years that uh, Sir Frank Williams yes. has been uh, running a Formula One team now. Apparently, according to Rich Energy, the politics and PC attitude in Formula One is inhibiting our business. We wish the team well. So, not the fact that in fact they can't get product out of people. They don't have a logo and they owe loads of money to white bikes whose logo they stole. And I can say that now because that is the opinion of the court. Yes. Hmm. Uh, we talked about the court orders last week. Mm. Um, have the cans we, been delivered? We, we need to know if the cans have been until delivered. Until the 18th of July, that's next Thursday. Oh, right, okay. Um, I think we should ring somebody up at White Bikes and say, have you got your 90 million cans yet? Have you seen how much Rich Energy is selling for on eBay? No. Because obviously, 
Rich Energy is compelled by the court case to do uh, everything it can to track down all of those cans and remove the logo from them. Excellent. So they're selling for sort of £100 each. A can? Yeah. That's fantastic. So Formula One will stay at Silverstone and Formula One will go to Miami, say Liberty Media. Well, shall we get our Miami Formula One correspondent up? And it's not Nick Damon quite yet. Uh, Shea Adam joins us now from rural Canada. Um, Miami is going to get Formula One, apparently, Shea. Okay, sure. Is Formula One um, some sort of new restaurant name, perhaps? Because they sure as heck aren't racing cars on the streets of Miami. What have what have Liberty Media said, Tim? Uh, Chloe Target Adams is the global director of promoter. I'm, so, I'm sorry, stop. Chloe who? Target Adams. Right. With Not a relative three, of three mine. Three T's. No. Mm. Uh, is the Global Director of Promoters and Business Relations. Mm-hmm. And she says, Miami's definitely a city we want to race in. It's electric. It's an awesome destination. It's hugely vibrant, dynamic, great city to add to the Formula One calendar. It's a complex project, getting a street race up and running when you've got multiple stakeholders and multiple community interests. Uh, you have to go about it in a way that minimizes disruption to businesses and residents. But that also adds to the area. Mm. You see, all of that shit, in fairness, is true. All the stuff about Miami being great is true. But also, all of it about getting all the stakeholders lined up and ducks in a row, that's all true as well. And, and we've talked with you before. Where they are proposing to have it, or where they have been at least proposing to have it, it's not going to happen there. So where else could it go? Let me guess. Is there somebody by the name of Stephen Ross involved with this now who's saying, oh, you can use the parking lot at the Hard Rock Stadium as a Ooh. racetrack? We'll, we'll would, offer that. Would that be local billionaire Miami Dolphins team owner Stephen Ross? Yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking. That would not be a great venue. Let me tell you, as somebody who lives in Miami, who deals with the traffic, um, the stadium is nowhere near the beach. It's nowhere near Brickell, where they've proposed this race to take place. You won't get the beautiful shots of the downtown buildings in the background, because they simply aren't there. You get the background of an industrial parking lot, the stadium, and the highway. That is not where Formula One wants to be. Um, And where would you park everybody if you're already using the parking lot? Uh, well, quite, I mean, some people say the highway. There, isn't there? Mm. Qu- sorry, there, well, there's there quite was. a lot of space there. Right. Because there's all, huge gardens around the stadium as well as the car park. But now, Tim, they've converted a lot of the car park already to be tennis courts for the Miami Open. So you're quickly running out of space, usable wow. space, and attractive space. That's the other thing, too. Shea, for the time being, thanks very much. Shea will be back with us in the second hour when she'll be talking uh, American sports car and open wheel with us here on Midweek Motorsport. Right, Tim, where to next? In the words of Nena Cherry, <laughs> what we're going to do is go back, way back. Oh, really? Back to the early days of Midweek Motorsport. Right. Uh, when it was you mm-hmm. and me mm-hmm. and Declan Brennan. All right. So does that mean we've got Declan Brennan on the line? Hello, Declan. Yeah, back years and years ago when I still didn't have any hair. <laughs> it's not coming back, Dex. Well, I, uh, no, hair's never been in fashion. Just, you know, forget it. Um, let, it's an well, there, there's, a, there's a theory, John. There's a theory my brother has that people have, uh, people maintain uh, the hairstyle that 
uh, throughout their lives that they had at their at their most successful. So the theory would be that I was at my, my most successful when I was a baby. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> anyway, carry on. Why are we going back into the, and I'm careful how I say this, the annals of midweek motorsport history? No tittering at the back, please. Titter ye not. No. Uh, once upon a time, around that time, uh, NASCAR used to have a lot more cars than it currently does. Right. Uh, and that's because there were people uh, who uh, conducted a process called Start and Park. They'd turn up, uh, collect the money for starting, mm-hmm. finish 43rd or 42nd, or maybe even 41st if there were lots of them, and then can go we home talk about, again. Can we talk about the entrant who, I can't remember who it was, who, uh, who uh, the, my favourite Start and Parker ever, who turned up. And was black flagged immediately because he had no pit crew. <laughs> he wasn't intending to change any tyres. He doesn't need a no. pit crew. That's fantastic. Although, not to be confused with Ed, uh, at Road America several years ago when Jack Villeneuve's pit crew had to leave early to go to another race. Excellent. Uh, when he that. heavily overran. That's excellent. That. Uh, on the subject of heavily overrunning, Daytona did, didn't it? Oh, it did. It did. It, uh, it, it was overrun whole, by a day. A whole day to start with. Yes. Uh, and they never got to the end of it. No, apparently not. But uh, delighted. You'll never hear the end of it, apparently. No, we will. We, we never saw the end of it, for sure. <laughs> Just, Justin Haley was a very happy young man. Uh, he takes his first win. However, there was a lot of people who weren't happy because they pitted just before they brought them into the pit lane and then subsequently threw the red and then the checker. That would be Kurt Busch. Mm. Well, he's already he's already in the uh, 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 the thing, isn't he? The I, thing. I'm, is. reducing it, I'm reducing it to just the thing. Yeah. We're now <laughs> reducing the <laughs> thing. thing. The thing is, Justin Haley can't get into the thing, even though he's won because he's a point-scoring Xfinity driver and they're not eligible for the thing. So he doesn't get the prize money, doesn't get the entrance into the thing, doesn't get any points. Oh, it's like being an amateur winning a professional golf tournament. You don't get any of the no any of the uh, the the extra bits. Yeah, you don't get the money. You don't get the yeah. That's terrible, man. Uh, it's his third ever um, Monster Energy Cup Series mm-hmm. uh, start, uh, and it's only the team's first season. Um, run by his uncle. Yes. But that is that is the the beauty of 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 the restrictor place is that you do, uh, and as as John uh, mentioned, you know once you 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 make some risks uh, or or take some risks with regards to strategy, or you you're just in accidentally in a position where uh, you have a bit more gas than 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 half of the rest of the field or whatever happens to be. There's always the beauty within the restrictor plate system of of there being kind of lottery wins a great you know it's always always the case and that's kind of half the attraction like how many wins has trevor bain had since he won the daytona 500 that would be none i believe correct uh, unless i'm very much mistaken so uh and you know that's that is that's a, a, a fantastic attractive part of uh of of restricted plate racing in itself well you you talked about strategy let's hear from justin's crew chief peter suspenso well, my thought process was even if we have four flat tires, we weren't going to pit. We were going to ride it out and hope, hope that we, uh, you know, get something with the weather in our favor. It was more lightning than it was actually rain at that point in time. But I know every 30, you get 30 minutes every time you get a lightning strike within seven, eight miles, whatever it is. So it was our only option to try and steal a win, if you want to call it. But uh, there was no way we were coming in. 
I was actually surprised that a couple of guys in front of us pitted in front of us. But my mind was made up. Really, my mind was made up when we got back on a lead lap and uh, noticing that the rain was coming. And I said to myself then, I said, if we get in a position, I'm not going to pit. I don't care what happens. And it just worked out that way. And it was a long time waiting. Obviously, I don't know how long the rain delay was. It had to be like, what, two hours? Yeah, it felt like 20 days. And it's been hot down here. It's been a tough week on everybody. You know, everybody working, the pit crews, the, the guys working on the cars. It's just been hot and rainy. You know, you're fighting weather, fighting this, fighting that. And we just wanted to come here today and just have a decent finish, not have any issues, and just finish where we were, you know, not getting caught up in any wrecks. And, you know, it just worked out. It doesn't happen that often. Uh, so that was uh, Pete Suspenso. Uh, the team uh, is a new team. They only bought the uh, franchise uh, at the end of very end of last year, having taken out a $6 million bank loan to do so. Uh, and the uh, man behind it is TJ Pusher. Here's how he did it. How do I feel? Uh, I probably couldn't explain. It's surreal. Um, it's obviously a huge, huge moment to win in the pinnacle of our sport. At Daytona, no, I mean, this is it, right? This is the world center of racing. I mean, it says it on the wall. Thank you for the cue card. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's a huge deal for us. Um, we just want to be in control of our own destiny, you know, and we've put a lot of money in a lot of people's pockets in this garage, you know, and there's a lot of people out there that think we're doing this as a cash grab, the way the charter system works, and that's just, quite frankly, that's not true. Um, Jeff Dickerson and I said, we believe in the sport. We believe in the platform. Of, um, that NASCAR provides, right? This is um, this is the American dream. I've been coming here, sitting on that lawn since I was 10 years old, saying one day we're going to do this, you know. And um, is this PC in here? Or how does that got to work? Because I mean, like, f- it, we did it, right? It's like <laughs> it wasn't pretty. I've lost my fair share of races. We've dominated races. I, I you know, I grew up working for Todd Braun. That was my first big job. Um, but I've been in racing all my life, you know. My dad was a chassis guy for the Rapid Roman Hall of Famer Richie Evans, right? So, you know, this isn't new to us. We've been doing this a long time, and we're trying to build something. Um, But the way that this shook out in November of last year, um, you know, Five Hour was a client of ours. Furniture Row was a client of ours. So this this is bittersweet, you know. Love Barney Visser, love the Visser family. Um, Joe Garoni sitting somewhere. I hope he's on his boat enjoying this, but but it's hard. You know, those those were – that's our family, you know? So, yeah, this means a lot. It's a big deal, but this is um, – this is um, we did it early. Um, and, and, look, uh, it's not lost on me that luck was on our side today, but um, I'm not going to feel bad about it at all. I'm going to love it. So, we'll, you know, we're just going to continue the little engine that could and build this thing as best we can and go from here. So that was where Furniture Row ended up, Declan. Uh, when we were, and that was a former championship winning team. How how is that possible? Mm. I I don't know. I, I literally have no idea what that says about the current state of the sport, where the uh, championship winning team can sell its franchise to somebody who got a bank loan. Uh, I that my head is spinning <laughs> and about to fall off. Hang on, De- hang seems- on. Get tweeting in, ladies and gentlemen. Declan Brennan is literally lost for words on this. No, I'm not actually. That would be that would be just unfeasible. There, I used the word unfeasible. No, I just I 
John, how does how is that possible that in any other sport, if you're the championship dominant championship team and you went to sell it, it will be worth fifty times, mm-hmm. you know, what it was worth the year before, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and yet it's six million bucks for a French. That is absolutely astonishing. Now, in fairness, a... of course, he might not have bought all the equipment and and everybody else, um, but. But he bought the franchise because it's a yes. franchised operation. But it's yes. a NASCAR franchise. That would be like saying, even if you bought the last franchise in NFL or, you know, whatever. I mean, that's an extraordinary thing. This this new team has more wins than Stuart Haas, Chip Ganassi and Roush Fenway combined. It's an extraordinary start. I mean... It- it's it just it, but also let's go back to that story that we've only briefly touched upon in the past. Furniture, furniture, row racing, furniture, row racing. Uh, I'm moving into a new house. I'm about to have a row about furniture. <laughs> uh, furniture, row racing, uh, did everything the right way. Mm. Uh, defied convention, based itself in Denver. Uh, entered using uh, off-the-shelf uh, chassis and engines. Uh, continued to do. Changed manufacturer. Went to Toyota. Got better. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, became effectively, in some respects, a, 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 an offshoot of, of Gibbs. But but then, if, even if you were to describe them as that, they went and beat the parent Correct. or the foster parent. Uh, you know, won championships, uh, gave Martin Truex Jr. the platform to show how much talent he, we've known he's had since he was a multiple Bush Series winner over a decade ago. It's And then they do that and then say, yeah, this is way too expensive. We're going to stop now. It's it's nuts. Mm-hmm. As you say, I'm not sure what it says uh, about about the whole situation at the moment. Maybe that's a whole program in itself, and we'll we'll do a bit more. Well, I will say, I will say what I will say why why it was too expensive for them is because of the way they funded it. They funded it with they they literally were a self-funded team. Uh, Furniture Row is literally a a giant uh, a mall or row of 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 massive big box furniture stores who were leveraging their partnerships with yes. Sealy and Simmons and, yes. and, and Beautyrest and the, all of the mattress In a not people. dissimilar way as Nigel Mansell went IndyCar racing, if you remember. Because yeah, yeah, exactly. that was a target. That was Target yeah. doing exactly the same thing. No, with... that, no, with, that, no, not Target. Target was uh, the sorry. other loss. No, it was... He was uh, he was Kmart. Kmart, of course he was. Yes. Yeah, but but Target the same thing. It is a, yeah a, a similar model, but but even then they couldn't make it work because the the numbers were uh, like to stay competitive. It's just astonishing. At least we did get. I will say, and I'll leave it with this: if you've never seen it, at least Martin Truex winning the championship did produce the greatest uh, moment in NASCAR history, which is him getting his award from Brian France. Which, if you've never seen it, it is without question the most jaw dropping. Four or five seconds of video you'll ever see. But uh, and everybody's, that's story. everybody's scrambling now. Uh, it's Midweek Motorsports Series uh, 14, episode 26. Declan Brennan, don't go away. We've got more for you in a little while. Moving on to sports cars now. And Ooh, yes. uh, another round of the VLN this weekend on the Nürburgring Nordschleife. You're going to be uh, talking about that, aren't you, on Saturday morning in the... Uh, Accompaniment of Mr. Jonathan Palmer of this parish, yes, uh, uh, yes, well, I not am. of that parish. He's a more Western parish than you. He is, but we've got a change in a result, Nick. Uh, Nick, Tim. I'm still Tim. I know we've got a change in a result, Tim. Yes, the never been 24 hours. Result has changed. Two weeks after the event, uh, the DSMB 
found uh, in their technical inspection uh, exp- inspections. Do you mean the DMSB? Yes, I do. Um, however, the place I'm reading this has got the wrong way around. Um, the power output of the engine exceeded the 494 horsepower allowed in the Mantai Porsche that came second. Now, that was the car that should have won, would have won, had it not been for the five-and-a-half-minute stop-and-hold penalty that it but had for exceeding. clearly only because it was cheating. The engine in the 911 car, number 911 car, complied with all the key points of the homologation. The only thing that was not consistent with the prospect prescribed two times 34.6 millimeter diameter of the restrictor which was the size we've used was the performance value calculated by the adac technical committee we must accept we did not check the plausibility of the value calculated by the organizer neither on the test bent at visac or on our chassis dynamometer in moist path we accept the judgment and we will not lodge an appeal that means that the result Remains with Team Phoenix winning with the number four car. The AMG Team Black Falcon number three, which was the Maxi Book, Hubert Haupt, Thomas Jaeger and Lucas Stoltz car moves up to second. And on to the podium, René Rast, Marcel Fesler, Christopher Haase and Marcus Winkelhock in the car collection Audi number 14. As uh, Tim says, next round of the VLN is Saturday, live in Sound and Vision on uh, RS1. Yes, RS1 and Sound and Vision on the website. More sports car news from America with Shane in the second hour of tonight's programme. As we said, no Nick Damon tonight, but earlier on this week, I did speak to him about two-wheeled motorsports. Started with MotoGP, uh, which, of course, was at the Saxon Ring, and I suggested to Nick that that was a magnificent circuit. It's a lovely track, as you say, up, uphill, down, down, absolutely a motorcycle track. You wouldn't really run cars around it at all, though, I don't think. I don't think DTM would go there. There wouldn't be enough room, but it's a perfect motorcycle circuit, both picturesque and has the elevation changed all us purists love however um it's not produced decent race for seven or eight years because marquez and, and hondas just disappear off in the distance um and that isn't particularly conducive again i, I need to say this every time with motor gp i have nothing against mark marquez he's brilliant he is making it boring though um and I, the same, the same um, uh, negativity was, was pointed towards F1 prior to the Austrian Grand Prix is now being pointed towards MotoGP because it's predictable. Because one of the riders is way too good. Best well, rider, best bike now, which has, and that's it. Well, I think you saw that even more so at the Saxon Ring because if you took Marquez out of it, there was actually quite a decent scrap going on behind it. And I watched it on catch-up. I didn't see it at the weekend. So watching it earlier on this week when it came round again on the telly box. And I mean, even Eve said, um, it does look like everybody else is trying really hard. And, and, and you know, there were the battle for fourth, which became the battle for third, uh, when Rince fell off. Uh, then... You know, they all look like they were doing absolutely the best they can. It's clearly difficult to overtake there, and I accept that as well. But Marquez is in a different class there. And, you know, without him in that, that would have been a brilliant win. It would look like a Moto3 or a Moto2 race. Well, that's the, you know, over the past few years, there have been five riders which have been have been classed as aliens. I don't necessarily agree with this title, but the, the riders would be uh, Valentino Rossi, yeah. who's now 40, and 
I don't like to say it, but star a little bit on the way. In Casey Stoner, who's retired, Adair Pedroza, who's retired, Jorge Lorenzo, who has completely lost it and anyway is injured, and Mark Marquez. And Mark Marquez is brilliant, possibly the best rider of all time, or the equal best or you know, best of his generation up there with um, you know Agostini and uh, Phil Reed and, and, and Valentino for the period. But there is no competition. No. The rest of the best are just jobbingly good, you know. Vivioso, yeah, good, solid. Petrucci, well, you know, perhaps not. Ruins on the way up. Vignales, very patchy. You know, Quattarato, no, got it wrong again. Um, Quattarato. Quarter, quarter, quarter of sweets, um, possibly in a couple of years' time. But there isn't a field. And when you've got someone who's that good and it can only be beaten by the top riders of Lorenzo or Stoner or Rossi at the top of their game, none of those exist. And he's on the best bike. Mm. Don't forget, he's now got a lead, I think, of 50... Yeah, his lead now is 58 points, and he fell off from the lead in uh, in America. Mm-hmm. So without that, he'd be a hundred best part of 100 points ahead with him when he dropped down. So, you know, luckily he fell off there. He kept it sort of interesting. But you are seeing total domination that will continue, I think... Uh, you know, this isn't just this year. As long as Marquez can keep up his his, his determination, I'm sure he's got his drive. It, it may well be two or three years until the the stars align and the bikes, other manufacturers' bikes, get themselves together. We start seeing the next generation coming through. But I'm afraid we're at the at a point now where we have just one alien, uh, one retiring alien, uh, and one injured alien who's also lost it, and therefore it's a little bit too easy for Mark. But he is again brilliant. Yeah, and uh, as we discussed, the the upcoming uh, generation is nearly there, but nearly there against someone who's as good as uh, as the man we're talking about, Mark Marquez. It's just not enough, is it? I mean, uh, the the young Frenchman whose name you can't say. Um, let's not forget, it's his first year. It's his first year in it. He fell off for the first time this week, didn't he? As well. Yeah, that's the first time he's not finished. Um, Fabio Quattararo is how Quattararo. you say it. Quattararo. Give it Quattararo. Some if I give it to my fake, if I give it to my Flavio Brigatore, Quattararo, right now, you see, because he's French. Still, he's still eighth in the championship um, in that fantastic battle from Vinales, uh, Rossi Miller, Quattararo, Crutchlow, and to a certain extent, but a little bit further back, Paul Espargaro. Those guys are all battling for fifth place on down. But, I mean, 185 plays 127, Marquez to Davizioso, then Petrucci on 121, and then 101, Alex Rins. Rins did himself no favours at the weekend. I thought... I thought twice in a row, isn't it, now? Yeah, and, and that's a shame because that Suzuki... Uh, this is the best I've seen from Suzuki for a while. I used to be a big Suzuki fan, rode Suzuki's, as you know well, uh, and my first couple of bikes were Suzuki's, and my first brand-new bike ever was a Suzuki. And that... You know, that's the best Suzuki have been for a while. They're still not suited to every circuit, but they should have been good, were good at the Saxon ring because they're good at turning and they've got a bit of turn of speed. But, um, yeah, that was a shame. That was a shame for them. So, um, as as you said, everybody else, Jorge Lorenzo wasn't there because he was injured, but he's been rubbish anyway. Zarco's had a nightmare because he's on a KTM and also just because he hasn't got his, his head, head in the game. On the previous year, his head went. Correct. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. Uh, nice to see Cal Crutchlow. Injured. injured. Back again. He, got, he didn't get a podium. His leg was actually still officially broken, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 there was a chance when he looked like he was going to go for second and then the bike went away from underneath him and he just settled for third, which I thought was very sensible rather than f- fall off. Sometimes Joanne Mayer is there or thereabouts on the Suzuki. But really, there's there's, there's nobody 
that's anywhere near Marquez and, and the Honda. Uh, and by the way, the next Honda on the list is Carl Crutchlow down in ninth position, 120 points back. So that'll tell you the Honda is the best bike, but Mark Marquez has been getting it done. Well, John, it's exactly the same as Casey Stone on the Ducati. Casey Stone could could ride that Ducati in a way that no one had was able to before or since, including including Rossi. And they had to completely redesign the bike and start again. It took him four years to get a race winning bike again when he when he left them, because Stone had that ability to ride the bike as it was. And now with this particular Honda, again, it's now been developed in such a direction that it suits Marquez perfectly, and perhaps not that much other people. Yeah. Absolutely. What really has stood out for me this year as well is how difficult it is to go from even from Moto2 to MotoGP. It's clearly not an easy thing to do because if you look at last year's Moto2 champion, and as I started that sentence, his name was in my head perfectly. <laughs> um, he had uh, an absolute nightmare. And he has been having uh, a nightmare this year uh, making the change over to it everybody even as we speak are uh, tweeting that aren't we um, Banaya thank you uh, and and he is a Rossi prodigy as well of course um, but let's be honest he's, he's just he's not really shown he has not shown um, yeah. and, and I just think that that does tell you um, how difficult it is to to make the jump across to the big bikes now. Um, we get great racing in Moto2, uh, but Francesco Bagnaia on the Ducati is down in 21st points. He scored 11 points this year. Yeah, but the thing is, the, the, the Moto2 bikes, despite being, you know, 760 now, of course, with um, uh, Triumph, but they're only 125 horsepower. Yeah. And a MotoGP bike is 225, well, yeah. it, it has to get, they, they limit it because they can't get the power down, mm. effectively. Um and that's a big difference. It's a physically larger bike as well, but you know, I, it's it's a uh, yeah, it's a mystery this year. But um, I mean, I think so. Uh, have, so uh, what are we seeing? Go on, sorry, go ahead. that badly that man has run for one race with his best and bridles ahead of him. Um. Yeah, he did not a bad job at all, actually. Um, so obviously, so that's the two major superbike, uh, the two major two wheel, the bike championships in the world are over and done all by the uh, shouting because Bar- uh, Bautista uh, has disappeared off into the distance, uh, and basically him and Marquez have got the, they could both take a couple of weekends off and still win the. Except that's not the case. Well, you're right because he has disappeared off on a distance on several occasions. Unfortunately, not attached to his bike. Mm. Um, he has fought Bautista has fallen off uh, three of the feature of the last six or the last yeah the last six feature races he's fallen off twice from in the lead and once from about fourth so that's 60 70 points gone straight away um, Ray's made a bit of a comeback and from the season being basically over because Bautista was 60 points ahead and winning everything I think I think we Six, just saw it was it. 61 points ahead at Italy, wasn't he? Yeah, Imola, it was, um, yeah, because that was the first time he didn't win the race, but he still put in a a good set of three scores. And he thought, fair enough, just not a good track he doesn't go to in. Well, I'll tell you now, in terms of fastest laps, Bautista, nine. Jonathan Rear, three. Top Rack, two. In terms of the Super Paul Awards, 141 points for Bautista, 127 for Rear, 81 for Alex Laws. Next one back. He was walking away. He was in the distance. And in the space of, what, two and a bit meetings, three meetings now, that 61-point lead has turned into a 20-odd point deficit. And I think, you know, they say 
nothing in sport should surprise you, uh, but that, this does surprise me. I mean, yeah. obviously, Jonathan Ray is incredibly good, and he uh, is proven by the fact he's just shy of 200 points ahead of his teammate. But then Alvaro Bautista is more than 200 points ahead of his teammate. So you've got two people who are at the top of their game, on the top of their bikes, effectively. Um, and they are now battling with each other. And you still get the impression that it's you know, the Ducati is the better. The Ducati-Bautista combination is theoretically the faster. But Johnny Ray is the consummate world superbike professional. And he knows that if you can't win, you rack up the points. And Took uh, all three races at Donington. Uh, wet race on the Saturday, then Super Paul and the feature race on Sunday. First time he's done that this year, of course, because of the uh, Ducati and Bautista um, domination up and, and up until that point. Uh, and that, uh, sorry, go ahead. Long way behind on wins, but um, he's obviously many, many, many seconds ahead. Uh, not in time seconds, position seconds, and the odd third. Did you see, did you see who re-dedicated the, the wins to this weekend? See who was no. the most instrumental in the wins? No. His physiotherapist, because he suffers really badly from arm pump, and Donington is a place where you do have a couple of big stops. Um, uh-huh. And it's and he said, I, I, I was expecting at any time through all the races to, to have an issue with it. Obviously, it was wet on Saturday, so that was a help. But he said, I'm, I've never had a twinge. It's been great. Arm pump, for anybody that doesn't know, is it's awful. You've had it before, haven't you? Yeah. yeah Even very, on very track painful. days. Yeah. Just arm effectively paralyzes itself in a way. It's a strange, um, it's like tennis elbow, but down your entire arm. <laughs> Basically, what happens is because you're putting so much uh, force trying to pull a brake, move a throttle, do a clutch, because they don't use a clutch so much, but also hold yourself from being fired off over the handlebars because these things stop so well, um, then your arm's doing about a million different things at once. And basically, all your muscles don't have the opportunity to relax and they go into spasm and they become instead of being nice muscles that work both ways they become like having a it's like having a, a steel rod down your arm instead and it and it's it's awful isn't it it is very painful and it's quite worrying as well you lose have you had it where you lose feeling in your fingers as well yeah i've, had, I've only ever had it once um and that was on a track day and oddly it was only it was one session and it went away and the next session it didn't come back um but it was a weird thing um but yeah, I mean, the thing is, of course, if you're, if you're, I mean, obviously, a, a racing car can break more than a, a motorcycle can because of the contact patch. Because when, they, when you're actually braking, you're, the drivers are perfectly braced against the belt. It's not an issue at all. When you when you brake on a, a motorcycle, and they all brake at more than one G, a, a racing motorcycle, that, that extra weight is all on your arms. So suddenly, Correct. if you were 170 pounds, you're now 340 pounds. Yeah. Um, the thing that you get nowadays in race cars, and particularly with anything with downforce and slicks, is the the pedal pressure um and you're mostly left foot breaker mm. nowadays and so you get a you're likely if you're going to get a problem anywhere you'll get cramp or a or a of that kind of spasm you'll get it in your left calf or your left thigh because you are the pedal pressures that you are having to use now even on never mind on formula i have no idea how they do it on a formula one car no idea at all but i've i've been mean, little prototypes obviously i did sp uh three um, radicals um, but even touring cars and GT cars nowadays you're hitting the pedal so hard that that's where you get it on a long stint and sometimes you're in a car for two and a half hours aren't you um, but motorbikes you're holding your own weight up as well so the issue becomes there not is it is it painful but also 
which people who don't ride motorcycles probably don't understand, Nick. Um, but even when you ride a motorcycle on the road, where you put your weight on the bike is an integral part as to how the bike handles and what you're doing with the bike, whether you're filtering through traffic slowly or whether you're actually riding quickly. And if you can't brace yourself and put your body weight where you want it to be, that's going to affect how the bike handles. Yeah, I mean, in a racing bike, the the the, the control of the bike is 95% the positioning of the body. Yeah. Because that is what takes you into corner. Yeah, you, 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 to tip a bike in, you reverse steer a tiny amount. The amount it tips in uh, is and will turn is so much more to do with its body position than, than turning the, the wheel. So, I mean, I, I yeah, I think it's uh, it's it's a uh, yeah. We, we've seen certainly a number of the most GP riders have to have um, sort of equivalent of carpal tunnel operations. Exactly, so a similar thing to to relieve the pressure. Um, it is very serious. It, it, it has ended careers. I mean, a lot. Of, I think Danny Perez has had a lot of injuries, but I think he dropped off the absolute top echelon because of arm pump issues. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, as so long the, as so, si- able- so since then, so the Pirelli Italian round, um, Bautista came second in in race one. That was the first time that uh, we hadn't seen him on the top step of a podium. Um, that was the twelfth of May. Uh, then we went to. Uh, Spain um, yeah. for one of the millions of race there then Rimini and now the UK and and Johnny Ray in that time has taken his opportunity with Alvaro Batista with getting the non-finishes to leap to 376 points against 352 next up by the way a, a pretty good season so far for Michael van der Mark he's having a good season on the Yamaha but he's on 206 points just 8 points ahead of Alex Laws on the similar machine then Leon Haslam for for Kawasaki, ahead of top top rack, uh, rag glag See, he's my one yeah, that I can't see. Mm. Um, I mean, really all the damage has Raz been done. You know, for Bautista's actual lead in the last four rounds, because the last four rounds have all been won by Ray, and he's yeah. fallen off two of them. And, yeah. and can't do lead. that. Um, not when you, not when he was eking out his lead at five points a race. You yeah. fall off to 25. You lose five races with a fall off, effectively. He paid better um, off. St- and it, it is the fact that he's fallen off. It's not the fact that he's not getting the results. It's the fact that no, he's fallen off. Right. If he'd finished third or fourth or fifth, he'd still have a good championship lead. He was a little bit slower. In, he should have, but in Italy, in, um, in Rimini, he should have won. The bike was good enough to win. In fairs at Donington, it was, it, it was, more, it was more of a racer because he knows it and the bike was going well. And then, of course, they're off for Cota, aren't they? Is it Cota? Or, or no, they're off for Laguna Seca. Uh, Laguna Seca. Then they have this massive gap from the 14th of July. They come back on the 8th of se- 7th of September. Yeah, they go to Portugal, then France, uh, then Argentina, and then finish off in Qatar uh, on my birthday weekend. Ooh, it, that's a good um, place to go. Are they at Mancor for France? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, let me check. Standby caller. Uh, the French that's, round. Is the race they're going to? It is Mancor. Yeah, it is Mancor. It is Mancor. Yeah, it is. Yeah. The interesting thing about this is the races they are going to outside of Qatar are all not on the GP calendar. Ah, so Bautista won't have been there before. No, because Portugal goes to Estoril, doesn't go to uh, doesn't go to um, uh, doesn't go to uh, <laughs> Portimao. Portimao. France yes. goes to Le Mans. Le Mans is France. Yeah. Not. Oh no, actually, I think the Argent- is, Argent- is it the same Argentinian circuit they're going to now? I think it is. Yes. Yeah, sorry. So the next three rounds aren't aren't uh, any more Grand Prix circuits, and certainly Bautista wasn't. I don't think Bautista was doing Grand Prix the last time they were at Laguna, which is several years ago. Do they go to San Juan? Do the does GP go to San Juan? 
No, there's no. I, you know, it's a really great question because there is a, there is an Argentinian Grand Prix. It's the second race of the year, and I can't remember which one it is. I'm really honest. I, I don't know. Someone should tell us, shouldn't they? Really. Um, uh, okay. Valley it sounds unlikely. If I can, uh, if I can find cross reference the GP calendar and men live on the internet. Yeah, hang on. <laughs> if I could find the English version of um, of Mortal <laughs> GP rather than the German one, uh, then I'd have <laughs> half a problem. But I mean, there was a lot of very snooty no, people. Different track. It is a different they, they track. They go to yeah. to Rio Hondo. Uh, so there, so there's four tracks basically, um, which he won't know as well as as Ray. So, but I mean, there was a lot of snooty people um, after Bautista said, "Well, we expected this to happen." Bautista, so much easier. Superbike, he's going to wipe the floor with everybody. And all right, you know, there's no doubt that the Ducati has um, a bit of an advantage. But Bautista's ridden ridden it really well until he hasn't. And, and what is that then? Do you think that's just a lot, lot of concentration? Do you think he's under more pressure than perhaps we think he is? But he's made some really, really unusual mistakes Can after I riding beautifully in the first part of the season. Let, let me let me back references to a story we probably won't cover, but it relates to the F1 scene. There's a lot of news yesterday about Christian Horner saying that Max Verstappen was a better driver than Lewis Hamilton mm. because of his results in the last year. Mm-hmm. In the last year, after after he recovered from his terrible start when he started driving well again, Max Verstappen has been under no pressure. None. He's just been snatching advantage where he can. No pressure at all. If he has an anonymous race, no one notices. Lewis Hamilton has been under intense pressure fighting championships for a year and a half and actually hasn't put a foot wrong either. To me, that's a lot more difficult than just opportunistically winning a race occasionally, however well you drive it. Bautista has not won a world championship. Johnny Ray has won the last Very several. Good. Knows how to do it. Now, I think that actually Bautista was having a lovely time and he fell off. And that happened. And then he had a, a, another I think a slight problem. And so suddenly his lead of 60 points and easing away suddenly dropped down to about 25. And at that point, the pressure turned up. because People started asking the questions. It stopped being easy. It stopped being Bautista in the V4 dominating. It stopped being, And suddenly, the lovely little ride he was getting of a free ride of looking brilliant, the pressure ramped up. And now he's put even more pressure on himself because he's got to catch up. And he's made these mistakes. It's not like the bike's blown up and it's, you know, it's always one of those things. He's fallen off from the lead twice and from fourth once and also not been convincing in a couple of, well, that's not fair, and not had other good races. And now a man who, who the one thing that Johnny Ray knows how to do is win races and win championships. Uh, and he's a Jackie Stewart. He will, he will win a championship with the least number of points if he has to. And that's, you know, he will just tick out the points. That's all he did at the start of the season. Just, well, I'll keep coming second and see what happens. And what happened was the swings are great when you fall off in, in bike racing is where the points are. Mm. And it is a completely different driving, riding at the highest level, as we all know, at the very top level. It's nothing to do with muscles. It's nothing to do with eyesight. It's nothing to do with hands. It's 100 percent what's between the, between the ears. Yeah, that that's is exactly what Eve said. Right. It's exactly and, what Eve said about Mark. I'm going back to Marquez at Saxon Ring. She said, it's interesting watching those guys. They believe they're pushing as hard as they can and they've got it into their head that they can't go any faster and their bike isn't going to be any faster. And and the thing is that clearly there's there has to be something left because there's at least one bike out there that's as fast as the guys who's at the front. 
Mm. Yeah, and it, it is just totally in the, yeah, that last bit is in the mind, which is why you look at the the great drivers, and they've often been accused of playing mind games. Prost, Senna, mm. Schumacher, you know, uh, Alonso, they've all been accused of playing mind games because they have that spare mental capacity. And when you're doing everything you need to do, it's very easy to drive relaxed. You know, not a problem at all. Under pressure, it gets harder and harder and harder and harder and harder. And you see people tightening up again and again and again when they get on that press situation. Now, I'm not, Alvaro now needs to prove he is a world champion by recovering from this. And all is not lost. 24 points, even with the slow turnaround and Ray like to score points. You know, if he had one, if he has another race, if he has a race a series at Laguna, like he had at the beginning of the season, that lead would be down to about 11 and suddenly it becomes one race and becomes very easy. Mm. But, He's carrying that pressure, and that is the difference between driving with a championship in mind or driving just for fun, which yeah, and that or riding sorry for fun. And, and, and I, yeah, again, things when I read things, things annoy me, and, and that the Christian Horner comment annoyed me because people don't actually analyse what's going on, and it's a fabulous example that Eve brings, and it's a great example here that it is about your mind. So much is about your mind, especially, mm-hmm. especially yeah. when things start going wrong. So that was Nick Damon talking about uh, motorcycles, uh, WAC, WSBK and uh, MotoGP earlier on this week. Declan Brennan has stayed with us because the other story, of course, that came out of uh, World Superbike, but just after Nick and I uh, were talking about that, was Marco Melandri stepping away at the end of the season. Um, We talked there about the changing of the guards and, and what's going on in uh, MotoGP. You could say the same about uh, World Superbike as well. What a record we are seeing now coming to a close from Marco Melandri. Yeah, he's, I'm, I'm a, I would have to say he's, he's a favorite of mine. And I'll, I'll let me, let me just start by saying, uh, I first became aware of him during a, uh, it would have been a five live uh, sports update uh, in it would have been July or August of uh, 1997, because at the end of a Grand Prix report, they they as in a throw-in, they said, and by the way, uh, 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 making his debut at the age of 15 was Marco Melandri. What? Yes. F- 15? Yes. But yes, yeah, he made his Grand Prix debut at 15 in 125s. Uh, having had a 17-year career in Italian junior formula up to that, because they all have. Yeah. Uh, you know, he he... He literally is the archetype uh, phenom uh, child racer from that part of, from Spain or Italy who did everything, who did the, you know, the mini moto, then went and did uh, dominated uh, underage 125cc racing and then did the same in, uh, in, in motocross. Uh, just absolutely incredible talent. And then, then moved with uh, great, a great expectation in 97 into into one two fives and really you know a lot of them fade away or a lot of them just become part of the furniture in in those sports but he really did make an impression uh, across uh, let's see if we we'll go through he uh, he didn't win a championship but he he won multiple times in one two five uh won again uh, in double digits in 250s and won the world championship in 2002 and uh, and then made the, the 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 transition beautifully to MotoGP, where he more than held his own. Uh, oh, yeah. Had some had some fabulous performances, including uh, a, 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 is it 2006 of Phillip Island on oh. the Honda, which which includes without question arguably the greatest 
four or five seconds of uh, individual action in, in, in MotoGP history, which is him drifting round the final corner, one-handed. smoking the tire, wiggling his finger one-handed. One-handed. Yeah, celebrate. Absolutely. And, of course, when he came into World Superbike in 2011, um, he, in just his third race, he won both rounds at Donington Park. He was the first Italian to win at Donington Park for a decade. He won the second race. And, and then the next year, he jumped out of Yamaha, which he'd done pretty well with, onto BMW, which was extraordinary. And they were still struggling at the time. They, they had spent were massively several struggling. years. Remember, Troy Corser had that bike for a while and couldn't make it work at all uh, early. In, uh, so, yeah. And, and back he, at Donington, he, he took their first victory. Uh, then he went, did he go to Ducati next? I think he did. No, a Priya. A Priya. A Priya, right. yeah. Um, and then but, he went back, and 2015, he went back for a year to MotoGP, which didn't work out. And then, and then he, he came went back, back into Ducati. Ducati, and he, that was 17. Yeah. Uh, and he won for Ducati then at yeah, Misano. Yeah, he won. He was, he's, he, 2017, 2018, he was, he, he was uh, teammate to Chaz Davis. He's been, he's had a win in every year of his World Superbike <gasps> career as well. Has uh, it? So I hope. Yeah, oh. hopefully he'll get one this year. I'd love to see him get one this year for Yamaha before he before he retires, because then that would give him uh, wins on uh, Yamaha, BMW, and Ducati, which is uh, in fact he, he already has had. If sorry, of course he started his career at 2011 on the Yamaha, so he has won for Yamaha, BMW, Apria, and Ducati in World Superbike, that which is... is remarkable. And he Do you remember uh, that race at Phillip Island. Uh, la- it... Well, last year he did the double at Phillip Island, yes. where he was he basically. He, I can't say he perfected the speed wobble because I can't imagine he was doing it deliberately. But the bike was set up in such a way that at flat out, it was, it was almost scary. throwing him off. Scary. Yeah, just absolutely scary. And he, he beat in the, I think it was the second race. Was it the second race? Yes, when he beat Johnny Rear by, a, you know, an eyebrow's width. Um, it was, it was yeah. just extraordinary. And uh, what I would like to say about him overall is is that uh, I, I think about this. I live obviously live in the United States, and, and we have four major sports. So we have we have multiple big time professionals on a, on a weekly and daily basis retiring or coming to the end of their careers. And there's constantly the debate about who's a Hall of Famer and who isn't. Mm. And uh, and and I think we coined the phrase from MotoGP the. Uh, the Generational Talents Club, uh, which only has a very small number of members and a lot of people driving around looking for a parking space. Uh, I would suggest that Melandri doesn't fit into that no. ultimate group, but he is. But that's also not to damn him with faint praise. He is. He's a magnificent rider. He was. A, he was a close to a great, but not quite great. He's like Loris Caparossi. He was on his day. Beat, was unbeatable and beat everybody on his day. He beat Rossi, beat Gibber now. He beat, had some amazing battles in both Superbikes and 500cc uh, with Max Biaggi, who they didn't really get along. No, they're not at all. Uh, now, that said, uh, 75 podiums, which is the same as Colin Edwards' total. I mean, extraordinary stuff. Back on the um, Yamaha uh, this year, he will be missed. Um, run out of time in this hour. Tim, where do you want to go to next? Well, Declan, we'd like to do this. Apparently. Uh, yes. Blimey, what was that? I, I think that was the title music to RuPaul's Drag Race, was it? That's correct. Yeah. Oh, a show I've never seen, but no. my, my, my best friend Colin has interviewed him. Um, the, 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 I think this is fantastic news. I picked it up from um, Jamie Howe's Twitter feed at the weekend. She um, works on the NHRA shows for ESPN. 
apparently, Dex, they are seriously talking about going back to a full quarter mile for drag racing. Oh, thank you, baby Jeebus. Mm. Uh, that would be, oh, that would be magnificent. And, and the reason why I'm consistent on this is that the moment that they they went away from from that and they shortened the races. I, I didn't lose interest because as a spectacle, it's still oh, remarkable. It's extraordinary. Yes. Everything about it is, it's remarkable. But, but I lost my frame, properly lost my frame of reference, and Correct. I've never really got it back. And if they go back to that, I, I can, I, it's like I'll understand it again. You know, uh, it's like it, it's like if they made the hundred meters, forty-five meters, it would it literally wouldn't make any sense. I would. Oh, are they fast? We've, are we've they enlarged not? the goals uh, by twice as much, uh, made them <laughs> twice as tall and twice as wide because we want more goals scored in football. I mean, it, it, that's I, I know exactly what you mean. This, this, there's, there's you're not comparing apples with apples. You're not even comparing apples with tennis rackets at that point, are you? No, uh, I could eat an apple through a tennis racket. Uh, my teeth are so bad, as somebody once said to me. But that's another story. The, the 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 fact that they will go back to 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 if they do, and I I really do hope they do this. Uh, uh, they changed because of safety issues after, and I'm going to get this wrong, but was it after the death of, oh boy, was it, uh, how long ago Scott, is that? Scott Kalitta, it's, it's eight or nine years. It might mm. even be a decade. It may be a decade, but, uh, I think we, sh- they should, they should look at it from that perspective because I think it would, it, it would, I don't think the sport is dying in any way. I think it's, it still has consistently the same audience as always had, but I think it would spark a little bit of life back into it. And I certainly would probably pay more general week to week interest in it. If they were back to the quarter mile, because it's just what I know. I started watching the, the sport, like a lot of people in the eighties on screen sport, when Joe Amato uh, did Eddie Hill did the first 300 mile an hour pass, if I remember correctly. And Joe Amato broke the, they were basically in and around the same time, breaking five seconds under 300 mile an hour barrier at the same time or, or, or in, in a relatively short window. Uh, and that's across a quarter mile. And I want, so, so that's what I understand. And that's what I know. And I want to be able to go back to that. So I can go, yes, that is amazing. I know. I think it's amazing now, but I'd like to be able to say, yes, I fully grasp why what they're now doing is incredible. Uh, can, do you think the safety aspect, can all of the tracks go back to a quarter mile? Because there's some places that don't have the runoff. So not everywhere we'll be able to go back to. And I'm thinking also about places where we do four wide. They w- they've never raced quarter miles on those four wide Well, tracks. how about this? How about this then, John? Then we then we have effectively have it like the difference between a super speedway and a short track. Yes. You yes. get to, you, you race like the way uh, AMA uh, uh, dirt tracks run short tracks and they run what they call TT courses which are flatter some of them even have jumps and some of them even have some of them even have uh, right hand turns oh, right. so uh, you know so so just running a different type of course I think would I think it, it would allow some of the older tracks like places like Texas Motorplex and uh, and uh, 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 in the Annapolis Raceway Park uh, I think it would probably allow them to to effectively rebrand themselves as as like marquee. And that was, uh, by the way, that was 2008. You're out, absolutely right. Scott Collector's fatal crash. Yeah. Um, that was the funny cars immediately uh, after that, rather. That was July wow, 2011 years. 11 years ago. I, so I wouldn't have thought that was that long, if I'm honest. That tells you um, how long that's been around. 
but you could run uh, effectively a, a, a you know almost like a triple crown or or a select group yeah. of of a championship within the championship for the for the for the I know this is going to sound ridiculous in the context of endurance racing for the long races. Yes, the long. <laughs> yes, and, and in fairness, some bracket races have run at an eighth mile or a thousand feet anyway. They always used to, yeah. but but that you know for the top classes it was always a quarter mile, and yeah. you know, I've been fortunate enough to go to the Gator Nationals a couple of times. I've seen some of the European events at, at Santa Pod, which is not too far away from where I'm sitting now and I've I've only seen the shorter tracks on television and the shorter events on television and, I, and I'm like you Dex I, I, I kind of I find it hard to take it in we'll keep up with that and I'll try and get a word with Jamie Howe in the next couple of weeks when we bump into her at some IMSA events and see what she can tell us about that because I, I think that's a very interesting development Dex thanks very much for joining us tonight mate always a pleasure Oh, my pleasure. I'll, I'll come back on any time. I do want to, at some stage, have a, an argument with Nick about about MotoGP, but because uh, I, 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 as I said uh, on Twitter recently, I listened to last week's episode the other day, and I found myself shouting at my uh, at, at my phone uh, uh, in response, which is pointless because uh, it was a recording. But never mind. <laughs> That's the essence of a good broadcast. Thank yeah. you, Dex. Oh, my pleasure, uh, and thank you. <laughs> Please report any unattended bags to a member of... Oh, hang on. <clears throat> Wrong script. Is Midweek Motorsport and still to come. Uh, the packed first hour of the show, but still plenty to stay tuned in to for hour number two here on RS1. Uh, Shay Adam will be back with us from the Canadian wilderness, uh, where I'm sure she's having very lovely afternoon uh, she'll be talking US sports cars and a bit of open wheel stuff with a Canadian sort of flair in that as well or at least a link to Canada as well uh, keep your tweets coming in please to at specutainment and Tim and I will be back in the next hour as well I'm sure you're pleased to know as will the newest winner in the IMSA sports car paddock and it's probably not the one you're thinking of it's the second hour of Midweek Motorsport coming next on RS1. Midweek Motorsport on RS1. Our big interview tonight is a man who won big at the weekend. Delighted to see a Michelin Pilot Challenge winner from Canadian Tire Motorsport Park. Robin Liddell joins us. Robin, first of all, welcome to the show and congratulations. Yeah, good evening, John. Thank you very much indeed. What a phenomenal uh, what a phenomenal race weekend for you and Frank LePew at the weekend. Um, Canadian Time Motorsport Park, one of the real challenging circuits on the, of a number uh, on, the IMSA, uh, on the IMSA schedule. And the first win for Rebel Rock Racing. Brilliant. Yeah, no, we were absolutely delighted with the result, obviously, as you can imagine. And uh, we've had a huge amount of uh, you know, well-wishers and messages and everything coming through. I've been a bit overwhelmed by it, really. But... It's it's interesting because it sort of shows that people they do people notice they know what you're trying to do and what's going on even if they're everybody's just um, you know stuck in their own in their own moment in their own busy in their own sort of with their own programs and and so on and um, so it's been quite um, it's been quite nice from that point of view but we were yeah I mean we were absolutely delighted we've worked incredibly hard um, to put this whole deal together in the first place it took me a year to put the deal together yeah um, I mean I literally this this goes back to uh, the end of the Stevenson era for me and um, I actually 
the last race I did for for Stevenson Motorsport was VIR in 2017 in the GT4 Camaro. Uh, we finished second in that race, and it was on the Monday after that race that I uh, was told that uh, Stevenson Motorsport wouldn't continue the following year. And then, obviously, uh, shortly after that, um, John Stevenson passed away, which was obviously a big shock to everybody. So, um, But it was actually that week following that VIR race in 2017 that I started putting this deal together with Frank. I'd driven for the team in 2016 in the ST-class Cayman in the mm. Continental Tire Series, as it was then. And we had sort of a limited success, really, with that car and that program. I mean, Frank had bought the team from Jim Johnson, who was Rebel Rock Records at the end of 2015. And um, so he'd inherited, basically bought a team you know, turnkey team ready to go. But, um, you know, my sort of plan when I took that deal on, that had coincided with the end of my GM contracts. And uh, Stevenson bought the Audis and ran the Audi GT3 cars in GTD class in WeatherTech. And um, I was basically doing a bit of moonlighting, just looking to make a bit of extra dough on the side. So I did the deal with Frank. I didn't really know the guy. Well, I didn't know him at all. I didn't know anything about him, but he, somehow I'd come recommended to him. I think, actually, Jim Johnson, I'd got a wee bit of a relationship going with just, you know, bumping into him in the paddock and, and you know, talking about various bits and pieces. So we'd got a bit of a friendship going. And so obviously when he sold the team, I was touting around looking for a drive, found that drive, and that began a relationship really with Frank. And so throughout that year of 2016 it was the team was somewhat dysfunctional if i'm honest and it was a bit of a challenge and where i thought i was just going to fly in and you know or just you know more um uh, accurately just walk over from the stevenson tent and jump in that car and just you know drive and earn a bit of extra cash in reality it was started taking more of my time because it just needed so much attention really the deal mm. and the structure of the team and the lack of allocated resources to do the job effectively but frank was spending the money and he was getting more frustrated yeah so in in the end you know what happened with that whole situation was that what came out of that really was you know i gained a respect with frank for frank and and from him i think and we were sort of a kindred spirit so when he pulled out and then he wanted to come back the following year it was natural that we started to talk again and so that's really how the thing came about. And um, how did how did the how did the GT4 Camaro come about? Obviously, you'd had experience of that with the the Stevenson team, and and to me, it's always been a, a, a car that's uh, to coin a phrase has slightly flown under the radar. It's a, you know, it's Pratt and Miller, and they've been involved in it. It's got all the right bits on it, but it it, it hasn't really had the the following from teams, the take-up from the teams, and neither until now has it, has it really had, had the success. So, so why was that the, the obvious choice? Or, uh, indeed, was it an obvious choice? Well, I mean, you say that, but you know, just don't forget that we won two races with a car in 2017, So, and that was only in a six-race programme. So we did have success quite quickly with the car, um, with Stevenson. But, um, I mean... <sighs> You know, we decided to go with the car for a number of reasons. I mean, when part of this process that I went through with Frank when we were setting up the new team, as it were, was we did a, quite a bit of due diligence with various manufacturers. And we talked to a number of different manufacturers, uh, both within the UK, actually, and in, um, you know, within, sorry, I should say Europe and, and the UK and North America. So we looked at a number of different options. And I think, you know, the way I look at it to a degree is that if you um, there's two elements to this one, you've got to look at the package of the car, what it is 
and what its strengths and weaknesses are and so on and how you can, um, you know, deal with the series as far as that's concerned. And I think to me, it's a little bit like a democratic process. You have to fundamentally, when, when you look at BOP and all of this stuff nowadays, you've got to, you know, you've got to look at it and believe in it fundamentally as a process that it works. Because, and if you do that, I think the argument then stands that you could technically have any of these GT4 or GT3 cars and technically yes. you could still win races. Um, I certainly like the way that IMSA does their BOP process and so on. I think they've made a big step forward. I don't particularly like the SRO way of doing that, if I'm honest. I don't like the idea of one person playing God and having control over the whole thing. I mean, obviously, there are arguments for and against, I guess. But We should like explain the, the differences, Robin. Effectively, in SRO, they have a driver that goes out and drives the cars uh, and benchmarks all the cars, whereas in, um, in IMSA, IMSA collects a a giggle bite of of data every session and puts that through the ringer and comes out with with some empirical data it's a, it's a very it's a completely different way of looking at things isn't it well i think the key thing is that um i mean you know claude who's the technical delegate from sro that controls the bop globally for gt3 etc and gt4 i guess etc but you know they they are fia um, categories so clearly the SRO holds the, the the key or the main the standardized if you like homologation but, but from that then obviously the series can do within reason well they can do what they want I mean IMSA reserves the right to do its own thing but it does still adopt the basic SRO BOP and then go from that point but I think what I like in particular about what they've done is one the key differences for me are one they set up a technical committee so they've got seven people there's seven voices and that's a range of people within the INSA organization. So it is a, something of a democratic process. Um, the manufacturers all get to call in the following. So the manufacturers, after a race weekend, get to submit their reports based on their findings and their views, and etc. And a lot of it's data-driven, but inevitably some of it will be subjective. Mm-hmm. So they submit their reports, and then there'll be a BOP manufacturer call with IMSA. I think it goes the following uh, Monday after the event, depending on the calendar or the schedule. And um, they then, all, all the manufacturer representatives call in on that call and they then get to have an open forum and they can get to discuss their particular um, you know, point of view, um, put their arguments forward for getting a BOP change, et cetera, et cetera, listen to the others. So arguably it's a pretty transparent process. Yes. And then once IMS has listened to all that and they'll put their findings together based on, as you, as you rightly say, a lot of empirical evidence that's gathered. I mean, they're gathering huge amounts of data now. And most importantly, I think from their point of view, they looked at this process and realized that it, it was, they were, they were basically spending most of their time fighting fires and dealing with complaints from teams and manufacturers. And they thought, if we come up with a more mathematical set of solutions to this problem, then we, it becomes more of an open, um, you know, situation. It's more transparent in how we do, how we reach the conclusions we do. And now what they've got is, you know, very data driven, very mathematical, you know, driven. And so they've got scenarios where they can obviously now simulate a change. If like, let's say we've just finished an event at Mosport and they can now look and say, well, we won the race. Where are we on the curve? Are we above or below the curve? How, what was the pace of the car? How do we win the race? They, a lot of it's done by weighted average laps where they'll take out various anomalies and, you know, it's quite complex, even that equation. But essentially, they're coming up with the best case across the board and taking out some of the outliers. Mm. And and then what they will obviously do then is they can simulate some changes. So they can go, what if we'd 
given this car, you know, two, two millimetres less restrictor for the weekend or added 10 kilos or 20 kilos or whatever, and they can look and simulate the changes of those wow. of those or those effects. So anyway, all of that is one of the reasons why I wanted to go back to IMSA, because I do feel that in North America, it's still, I mean, you know, PwC has its place and I had time myself racing there yes. and I really enjoyed it. But I don't, I think overall, the GT4 level of gt4 and imsa is higher overall i would say um the thing i like about it i'll I'll be honest is and you've mentioned one of the things and that's the transparency of it that you know nothing's done behind closed doors it's not a finger in the air um it's not whoever's talking last or shouting loudest and the other thing i like and and we get this as well in the broadcast team uh, i don't have to go and look for imsa technical if something's changed um, first of all, it'll be on the website. There'll be a technical explanation, and quite m- nine times out of ten, Simon Hodgson, Hodgson or, or Jeff Carter, who are involved in 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 that technical side of things, will come and seek me or Jeremy or Shea out. Tell us what's happened. More importantly, they'll tell us what they're trying to achieve with the changes. Yeah. It's not just a case of oh, you know. Robin and Frank won last week, therefore we're going to give them 10 kilos. That's just not how it works. What they might say is, well, yeah, we looked at that, but actually it was their brilliant bridge strategy that beat them, and that car shouldn't have won that race. And therefore we're going to do this because we saw on the, on the, um, we saw on the data, it's never just about the lap times with them. It's how the cars can race and how competitively they can race together in a given, uh, a given set of circumstances. And they explain that. Not, they don't just say, here's the changes, work it out yourself. And, I, and that's the bit that I really like. Yeah, and they, did, they gave us a, a presentation at Mid-Ohio this year, which apparently they've been doing now for a couple of years. I wasn't there last year. But they, within that, they presented a good, you know... Uh, uh, really an ins and outs of how they get to that point yes. i have to say it is quite impressive and as long as you as say when you believe if you believe in the process if you believe in what they're doing and how they're doing it then you could argue that any one of these gt4 cars could be could be winning on every on any given weekend and that's the same with gt3 obviously if the process is Correct. happening effectively and so back to your original question was which was how we got to the camaro i mean there were a number of reasons obviously but familiarity for me was one obviously i had you know, 10 years of relationship building with GM, with Pratt and Miller, with throughout all the time I'd been with Stevenson. Um, you know, I'd been on their payroll effectively. Um, I knew the car. I'd won races in the car. Um, I do think the car is, when you compare, um, you know, there's a lot of cars out there in GT4, which are like, let's say, road-going supercars, which have a roll cage stuck in them. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the other end of the scale, which is could be, say, the Camaro or the Mustang, which arguably are not, a patch on those sorts of supercars as streetcars but what they've done essentially is take that car and they've built it into a racing car mm-hmm. and when you look at what's under the skin in the camaro you know x-track diff and gearbox um obviously a gm powertrain it's a standard you know production engine but you know pratt and miller have built essentially a car you know bosch motorsport ecu it's a racing car it's yeah. not a road car and to me that was the main the main attraction, not least the fact that, yes, whilst Pratt and Miller parts are expensive because obviously, you know, their expertise, their overheads, their mm-hmm. experience and skill, etc. But parts that you buy from GM are dirt cheap. Um, I mean, we can buy a drive shaft for 300 bucks. Wow. We can buy a front fender for $175. The parts from GM themselves, from if you have to go to a GM store and buy parts, they're very cheap. So that was also an attraction. Mm. And, and I'd also gained experience 
you know, without saying too much about any other manufacturers, but I'd gained experience from what it's like where you're getting a European manufacturer that's shipping parts to the US and yes. then selling them at an astronomical markup yes. to cover the motorsport, um, you know, budget. So yes. that was the, all of those reasons were. And when I looked at it, you know, yeah, there were other cars which I thought, yeah, that's a really good package or this and that. The Camaro is also simple to work on. It's a simple car, which we liked when the, our crew chief, Joe Hall, took a look at it. He was like, yeah, I really like this. We looked at the Merc. The Merc's a fantastic piece of kit, but it's not the easiest car to work on. No. Um, so there were lots of reasons. And, um, you know, in the end, not the other reason I won't deny it is the fact there were none in them. So, so I yeah. like the idea of being... You know, the only car out there, um, the only team out there running that car, um, you know, there's, there, are, there are advantages to that. And um, there's, there's disadvantages, no too, because you, you, there's nobody else to balance your performance against. If we go back to BOP, it's only you and what you guys, what you guys are doing. There's no other. Yeah, but arguably that's more of an advantage than a disadvantage, oh, really? to be fair, because it allows you to control your BOP to a degree. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Not giving I mean, too many secrets away. But that's part, well, I mean, as you said, it's, it's part of the game. game. I, I've got to tell you, Robin, that watching you and Frank battling against Mustangs uh, out there last weekend was absolutely outstanding. Watching Camaro, uh, you know, the bow tie versus the blue oval at somewhere, particularly somewhere like Canadian Tire Motorsport Park. If I just squinted a little bit, it all went back into black and white when we were back in the 60s and 70s and muscle car racing again. There's something very evocative about that as well. Well, there is, and it's hard for some of the Europe, you know, for those in Europe, they don't necessarily appreciate that sort of history or that heritage but i mean the camaro mustang uh, battle if you like both in terms of sales with uh, in detroit and also then following at the racetrack and beyond is is been a, has been a big thing in the, in north america for a long time and um you know it, there is and, and you feel that even as a european when you go there and race and you drive i mean i must admit well i remember actually here's the thing so when we were running the pontiac mm-hmm. back in 2008 and 2009 with stevenson i mean it was kind of an ugly car i mean it was a prep two car as you remember mm-hmm. without with a body on it so it was a space frame chassis with a body and it had the pontiac g6 based body and kind of it was kind of ugly it was a good car because it was pratt and miller chassis but i'll never forget when we when we announced we were going to rebody the car as a camaro Suddenly, the following that that went from that just just, you know, it went up um, tenfold, really. Uh, People suddenly engaged and they were much more interested And the same. Funnily enough, happened when we went away from the Camaro in 2016. We lost a lot of interest from the Mm. team. Um, So it's got a good following. The racing's really exciting. And I mean, obviously, we're we're super happy. I mean, like I said, with the whole program, we've put so much work into this. It took two years to get to this point, and the team's worked incredibly hard. We've got quite a small group of people, a combination, actually, of... Well, Joe Hall has been the glue, really, in it. I mean, Joe joined Rebel Rock uh, towards the end of 2016, and I immediately realised, when I was driving for him, I immediately realised he was a really good mechanic, very committed, very focused, very determined sort of guy, and great work ethic. He'd come from Rumbum. Yeah. But the majority of the rest of the crew we've got are either ex-Stevenson guys that I hired across or we've got a couple of ex-Alex Job guys, Phil Pierce, who engineers the car, who is a well-known face and, and person in IMSA and ALMS circles. Uh, it's been around for a long time with Alex Job since the early 90s, and he got experience from the ground up. Um, so we've got some really good, really experienced people. How important was it to put that toe in the water last year and do... Um, you know, a little handful of races and, and, and in, in some respects, I suppose, prove prove the concept of 
of the race because there's there'd been quite. I mean, there's been quite a lot of changes um, in what used to be Continental, now Michelin uh, Pilot Challenge. Not least the change of tyre manufacturer, but now. Um, TCR cars rather than ST cars, GT4 cars are the new G, GS, which to me has transformed the the whole the whole championship. To be honest, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, frankly, I think they should have gone that route a year earlier than they did. Yeah, and I remember having the conversation with um, you know various IMSA officials, powers that be, at the end of 2015 when we won the championship with the Z28 seven liter Camaro with Stevenson, and they just. There was a lot of talk around that time that our car had ruined the championship. But I think the truth is that, you know, these arguments get polarized very quickly. The truth of the matter is the series didn't react quickly enough and actually didn't set their stall out correctly. The, the, the Z28 arguably was a bit of a Frankenstein car and it arguably should have never been allowed to race. But when they were building the car, there was no... Um, every time they, Pratt and Miller looked for, from, for guidance regarding the new regulations that had been you know, communicated that were coming. Every time they sought guidance on that bill, they received nothing. Right. And so the, the series created the problem for themselves, arguably. And I think, you know, where then they, they had a sort of a, a year of sort of then where they had very low numbers in GS. Yeah. I think it was down to eight cars at one I was point. Down, Actually, t- most sport. Most sport, it was, I think it was six six yeah. or five. I mean, and I remember that. And people saying, oh, well, that's it. It's all done. It's it, this is not this is not sustainable, uh, yeah. and and GT4 is not the answer. And anybody who'd seen the rise of GT3 and to a certain extent GT4 in Europe, I always thought GT4 was an underrepresented class when it first came out, and couldn't understand why people weren't jumping on the on that bandwagon. And and people saying to me, oh, that's it, that'll kill it. Going to GT4, that's going to kill it." And I'm like, "Yeah, no. are, are you no. kidding? You're mad." Yeah, I mean, I totally disagreed with that at the time, and I do, and clearly the results have proven that that was the wrong thing. And, and in fact, that was the conversation I was having with IMSA at the end of fifteen. I said, "You guys need to just crack on and go GT4 because you've got manufacturers queuing at the door that mm-hmm. want to build and sell cars for this series, and you're you're balking at it because you don't have the guts to make the decision." <laughs> so, uh, frankly, I think they waited a year too long. But that that being said, you know, it did have an adjustment. And then now it's flying again, and I think now they've got a good formula. Um, and like I said, they're doing a good job in terms of how they do the BOP. So I, long may it continue. Uh, again, congratulations for Sunday. Um, Frank did his bit more than did his bit in the opening stint. There stayed on the lead lap, made a couple of three positions up. He, he's really coming on about how he deals with traffic, uh, how he's reading the races. Is he enjoying it? Well, I, th- I think he is. I don't know, actually. I mean, look, it's, you know, this has been a departure for me because I haven't... I mean, as you know, John, I did a load of instructing and coaching stuff years ago. You know, I worked at Silverstone and worked... I fronted the Audi Quattro driving experience days. I ran the five-day race courses at Silverstone years ago. You know, we ran the school courses there and stuff. So, look, I'm no, I'm no stranger to instructing people and coaching people and how to get, get themselves going up to speed. But it's not something I did for a long, long time because, frankly, I just f- ended up finding it a bit dull. But um, with him, I've really had to have an adjustment. I, you know, I've been very fortunate. I've driven with other pro drivers since, well, really all most of my professional mm. driving career. And, um, you know, suddenly I got a guy where... You know, this was a different deal because I was looking to the future. I wanted to drive. I'm still super hungry to go racing. Clearly, I think the result and the way that I drove at the weekend proved that. I'm, I'm not. I haven't lost my desire. I'm. St- I still want that as much as I ever did. But I also recognise that at my age and stage and career, 
you know, finding an opportunity was going to be a impossibly difficult, and and on B also my shelf life is limited. And what I've tried to do um, in in combining this actually with the Barwell job that I took in in Europe last year and mm. gaining some experience of team management there with Mark Lemmer's team that's running Lamborghinis and British GT and Blancpain, is that you know I'm looking to the future inevitably. And so with Frank, I saw a guy who I had his trust. Um, he respected me as a driver. He he obviously was buying into what I was selling him in terms of my pitch as to how I felt we should go as a team. And that's some responsibility when you haven't yeah. really done it before. You know, you realize that you've got this guy and you're convincing him to spend arguably over time millions of dollars yes. of his own hard-earned cash to take him down a path which could be a complete red herring, really. So, you know, I, I, I took that responsibility on. Not, I didn't take it on lightly. Um and I did my research and I've used all of my experience that I've gained over the years to try and make smart decisions. But I mean, coming back to Frank's driving, it, you know, for him, it's been, again, part of a process for me to get to a point with him where I'm really focusing on his needs in a way that I haven't had to do before in my professional driving career. So and 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 it's, you know, we've done a we've done a lot of work over the winter. We did quite a few days at Sebring and you know, most of my weekend now gets taken up with either managing the team, dealing with the guys, etc., and, and or coaching Frank. I've got very little time and energy left over for myself, for my own driving. And, you know, fortunately for GT4, you can, at my experience level, I can get in those cars and I can perform reasonably easily without too much thought about it all, you know. Um, but, Is it nice you know, to done... get in the car in some respects, Robin, and pull the helmet on and think, right, OK, now all I've got to worry about is me breaking and turning points and I'll get out there and do me job. And, the, and there's not a myriad of other to-do things on your list. Well, I'm, you know, I'm not, anyone that knows me will tell you that I'm, my admin skills and preparation and planning in that regard stuff is hopeless. So I've really had to force <laughs> myself to do it. Like, I mean, I'm sitting at my desk now. If you could see what, what I can see looking around me, you'd just laugh. But it's, you know, I just, I've realized I've got to get my shit together, frankly, and, you know, get ahead of the game on that. And now we're into the busiest period of the year. That mm-hmm. Actually, it's taxing me right now because there's so much going on in terms of the, you know, the program that we've got because he needs seat time. I mean, I went out to Mo Sport three weeks ago and did a track day with him um, in a rental car because he didn't know the circuit. And I knew mm-hmm. perfectly well if he went to Mo Sport without having seen the place before, he was going to really, really struggle. Yes. I mean, as it, is, as it was, it still wasn't easy for him. But I knew if we spent a day pounding around in a road car, he would at least know where he was going and then he'd be able to hopefully get the confidence in the in the Camaro and get himself up to speed. Which he did. But I mean, from, from my point of view, yes. You know, what I try to do is throughout the weekend, I just I just function, you know, I just concentrate on everything that needs to go on from a sort of processing standpoint. I, I don't really think too much about myself and my own personal needs in terms of driving the car until race day. Mm-hmm. And then I make sure that on race morning, I then take a a couple of hours away from the running of the team to basically step back a bit and make sure and go back to my old life as it were of just kicking back a bit in the in the lounge of the truck and making sure I've eaten at the right time and I've been to the bathroom and done all that kind of stuff and then I just and then I can get my head in the game I only need like an hour ideally to get my head in the game and that's harder you know that's easier said than done because inevitably there is a lot of stuff going on I mean one of the little challenges we had at most sport was Obviously, sadly for Paul Miller, they destroyed their car in practice and we share a pit box with them. And as you know, there's not a lot of space in the boxes. So suddenly, you know, all of a sudden they're tearing down their their pit setup 
um, their stand, their timing equipment, everything else is going. I mean, we have our own refueling rig, but the Continent or the, sorry, I'm sorry, the Michelin Pilot Challenge mm. teams have to coexist in there, as do the other support series. And they're all tearing their stuff down as we're getting set up to race where we'd normally be sitting on their perch using their, their monitors and stuff. So it was like suddenly we're in a cluster to try and get ourselves together. And, you know, you have to suddenly get involved and do stuff on that Is side. it true that you actually sent somebody out to buy a 55-inch television to, to get <laughs> yeah. the timing screen up? Yeah, we did. She yeah. said that, and it I was, was like, absolutely- oh, brilliant. You know what was really funny about it? I don't know if you saw the shot, but they had, um, I can't remember who was next to us now, but there was a team next to us who was like, had this million dollar setup sort of thing looking, you know, and, and then the camera panned down to us and we just looked like a bunch of jippos with some fold out tables <laughs> and uh, and a screen that was like uh, ba- balanced precariously on the edge of this table. You know, it was quite funny, but we got the job done. So, hey, doesn't matter. Yeah, cra- congrats again. A second uh, weekend in a row, um, WGI, Watkins Glen, and then CTMP. Uh, you got the Fans Award, the Forge Line Wheels Spirit of the Race Award, as voted by IMSA Radio and IMSA TV. That goes back to what we said, I think, about the following, about actually also um, how knowledgeable uh, the fans are. Cracking uh, results and uh, event at Watkins Glen and then going even better at, yeah. uh, at CTMP. And Lime Rock Park, uh, only a week off, and then Lime Rock Park, another fabulous circuit another intimidating circuit just the uh, the gt cars there for for the weather tech and the michelin pilot challenge which will be live in sound and vision again as always um how will the camaro go there robin well historically it's always gone very well and it was the other race that we won actually in 2017 mm. when i was sharing with matt bell so um I th- these cars of pratt and miller cars have always gone very well at lime rock actually and um you know, I'm 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 really looking forward to it, and uh, you know, I, I think just before you know you you go on from that, I just wanted to say, I mean, obviously you've got a lot of following, and um, you know, all the listeners and all the viewers and everything. I, I, we were bowled over to get to get um, voted that Forge Line Spirit of the Race event award, especially at both events. That was a huge deal for us, and 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 so I do I, I massively appreciate all that fan support and everything. It was it was quite an eye opener actually. It wasn't obviously expected, but um it, it's um yeah it's nice because you realize at some weird level that um people do sort of notice what you're trying to do exactly. and so that was actually a nice little vindication of like yeah actually people are noticing we're working hard on this deal so that was cool but yeah we're looking forward to lime rock and i think the car has always performed very well i mean a lot of it i, I love going up to lime rock it's people some people don't like it but it's like a sort of it's like Knock Hill, really, isn't it? It's, um, it's kind of on its own, but it's a lovely part of the country. It's always got a good fan base. It's a great track to spectate and stuff. You oh, go yeah. up the bank and you can see a lot of what's going on. And um, you know, it's tough to pass. It's it's a sort of rhythm track, isn't it? You've mm-hmm. got to get uh, got to get in a rhythm, and you've got to get good track position. If you've got track position and you're in a rhythm, it's hard to beat you. Really, if you're you know really the only sensible overtaking opportunities down into turn one under under braking, and if you cover that effectively, it's tough to get around. But Usually, as with all these things, um, traffic plays a big factor. And I think the one thing we've seen with the TCR cars is, frankly, they're so quick. Um, I mean, arguably too quick. And without opening another can of worms, I think the pace between GS and TCR needs to there needs to be a bigger gap. Well, you look at you, you look at the weekend, and this will be the same at Lime Rock Park. The pole sitter for TCR was seventh quickest car. Yeah, so, and there's no gap between when they start. So yeah. you know the, the TCR cars are already on the back of the GS field uh, when they're actually 
sixth or seventh quickest in GS, if if you see what I mean. And, yeah. and at Lime Rock, it'll be exactly the same. They're high downforce. They get the front tyres up to, to temp and pressure after one corner, it seems. And yeah. in that first twisty bit of, of Lime Rock, they'll be... They'll be quick. They'll be as quick, if not quicker, in that sector than pretty much all of the GS cars. No, that's right. I mean, they're lighter and they've got some grunt as well. They've got more grunt than you think. I mean, the GT4 cars are heavy with not a whole lot of grunt. Mm. Um, But I think, you know, look, I don't want to... It would be easy for me in the lead class to say, oh, well, you know, those cars are too fast. They need to be slowed down. And equally, obviously, with Frank, who's a guy that's qualifying in the back half of the GT4 field, he's one of the guys that essentially as as a... a relatively inexperienced amateur who's getting hustled and hounded by yes. these TCRs at the beginning. He's one of the guys that, that has, you know, struggles with that situation inevitably. So it's not a question of, but it's not about me necessarily having a specific or vested interest in that. Frankly, I just think if you've got a two car uh, series, a two class series, sorry, I think you need to try and have arguably, you know, a, a, a three to five second delta between those two classes. Yeah. And you see the same in GTLM and GTD. This yeah. has been a problem since the series combined and i think you know that it's a tough one i know i appreciate the arguments on the series side but they've got to try and split those cars a little bit more than they yes. currently are because i would think it help to have a split start at least at the beginning and have maybe yes, 10 or 15 seconds is all we're talking about we're not talking about half a lap here are we no it would there's no question about that but you don't get away from the fundamental problem that i mean i watched some in car online last night from i think it was uh Garcia passing the Porsche at Watkins Glen and he was also going around a GTD car and he's basically it's a drag race down the back straight with the with a GTD car yes you know and they've got ABS and mm-hmm. um, a GT Le Mans hasn't it's the same problem you've got exactly the same problem in that category that you do with with GS and TCR I think the, when you've got these multi-class uh, series you've got to have a little bit more gap between the cars a, a split start would help but, you know, IMS has made it perfectly clear that for whatever reason, for the show, for the mm-hmm. for the start, I don't know what, they don't want to do that. And and that's fine. But I think we need a we need a wee gap in there, really, if I'm honest. Listen, I've took up far too much of your time, but it's been a pleasure no, thanks, John. as ever. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with this. Many of our listeners won't know that you um, sort of collect small, <laughs> f- small French cars. How many Peugeots are you up to now? <laughs> You're breaking up now, John. I can't hear you. Ah, come on. You can tell us the <laughs> truth. Um, well, I've only got four at the moment. I had more at one point, but I've only got four, and I'm slowly getting rid of them. I sold one recently. I'm keeping my 1.9 GTI because that's obviously... That's a 205, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm keeping... Um, I've got an old turbo diesel I keep. I don't really know why I keep it. I just somehow like it. And I've... Don't, I don't know. You're, you're looking for answers. I can't give you the answers. I've no <laughs> idea why I've got these cars. I just have them. And... Uh, I've got too many cars at the moment I need to sell, and none of them. I mean, I have got one nice car. I'll say that, but uh, I do look after that. But the rest are not necessarily anything particularly, you know, desirable, collectible, or anything else. It's just, you know, it's too easy to buy stuff on eBay, isn't it? That's the problem. Yeah, you see, when you've got downtime now, you, team management as well, you'll have less time to get on classic and car sites. And although sitting in airports is always a bad one for me, that's when I start drifting start back browsing. to those. Oh, it's well, awful. you're like this. I just bought myself a. As a, as a wee runaround, I just bought myself a E46 mm. 330 diesel touring manual, M Sport. Perfect. Perfect. It's done, dude, it's done 130,000 miles. It's absolutely mint. I paid 2,300 quid for it. And maybe it's the Scott in me, but I just, I, I'm driving around quite smug thinking I've got a bargain. It goes like stink. 
and it's comfortable and it doesn't look that bad. I mean, it looks okay. It's a wee bit retro now, but it looks kind of cool. I like the E46 mm. shape. Um, so, you know, sometimes I just buy cars for like, cause I just fancy it, <laughs> and then, you know, and then you smoke around in it for a year or so and then ideally get rid of it. But it's the getting rid that's the difficult part, as you probably know as well. That is a very stylish car. I, uh, I once had the loan of one of those with a V8 in it to go to Le Mans many years ago. And, oh, that was, I've did, never been a they, big, big fan of BMWs, but I like that one. Yeah, did they ever do a road car with a V8? And I thought that was the whole, the bone of contention around that time, wasn't it? That mm. it, oh, they only did the V8 in the race car. <laughs> yes, well, there, there was a bit of, um, we we saw the uh, the V8 road car, uh, the, the Coupe road car, allegedly. And Joe Bradley was the one who had to point out to Gerhard Berger that that wasn't a real car and they were trying to lift our leg. And when Gerhard said, I don't know what you're talking about, Joe said, where's the radiator fan? <laughs> <laughs> it was a complete mock-up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember that car being. I think it was when we were at. Uh, would have been Petit in two thousand and one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Schnitzer, you'll well remember, Schnitzer was racing at Alex Job with the. Alex Job had got the four-liter Porsche engines. You could hear the works cars were different to everything else, and Porsche and BMW were really going at it. But Porsche were sort of, in one regard, they were um, a bit um, vindicated in their criticism because that car was parked up in the paddock somewhere as being the road car but we all knew it was just a it was a bit hokey really to be honest <laughs> yeah the uh the, the, they did at one stage get the, the four litre v8 but it wasn't the engine that they had in the race car that was for, no. for certain robin liddell congrats on the win and well done to frank and the rest of rebel rock racing as well that was a true team effort at the weekend Thanks, john and we'll see and you at lime rock in a couple your, of weeks um, we really appreciate your coverage and, and your support and everything else from you and all the fans. And you guys continue to do a great job for, for everybody, especially for those watching here in Europe. Really appreciate all that. Thank you, Robin. See you at Lime Rock Park and um, hopefully enjoying that interview. Shea Adam, um, magic stuff from Robin and a great win from him and Frank Depew at the weekend. So much fun, John, finally, to get to see a Camaro win again in the hands of Robin Liddell. I mean, we, we thought we were going to get it the week before when we were at uh, Watkins Glen. We thought there was some hope of Andrew and Robin reuniting their magic. But how cool for Frank DePew that he and Robin putting together this program, what did Robin say, like a year and a half ago? And now all of a sudden yeah. they're race winners. Yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, amazing stuff. I, um, I, I know we kind of talked with, with Robin a bit, but a masterful uh, stroke of tactics to get him in for his final pit stop first. Dropped down as far as 18th, I think, at one stage, having fought his way up to the outskirts of the top 10. Uh, and then got the lead, and he must have been worried at the end, um, but managed to, <laughs> managed to hold on to it. Um, it's, they're not in the championship running. Um, they've got almost yeah, only half the yeah. points of James Clear and Devin Jones. But my goodness, very, very close behind really is. You've got Jeff Westfall and Tyler McQuarrie in the Carbon Autosport Audi one point off the BMW and then one further point back Corey Fergus and Jesse Lozera who didn't have the perfect weekend that they wanted for Eric Carab giving him his 50th birthday present with the win but still coming home with some trophies and some champagne so it was a good weekend 
it's not quite a three-horse battle, though, because we have Alan Brynjolfsson and Trent Hinman still well up in the points. They're, what, 15 points off the lead? And when we've got 23, 24 cars in a given weekend, that's very much attainable. We've got Dylan Murray and James Cox. Again, not the greatest weekend at CTMP, but coming off the win at Watkins Glen, they're still in with the shot of the championship. Kyle Marcelli and Nate Stacey not exactly looking like they're going to repeat their feat of coming in for the top three in points, but they certainly turn their season around this weekend with a second place they sit sixth in points so it's still a really interesting battle in the midfield as well as in the front that's the grand sport category there was disaster for shelby blackstock and tom o'gorman never really got to the bottom of it there was an engine problem with their uh, lap tcr that basically stopped them even i mean i don't think they even did the first run to the green flag they were in the pits they didn't do they didn't do a green flag lap john I mean, they still, they got out on the track and they still got a couple of points. Um, yeah. yeah, I think they did. They they did go out on the track because they did three or four out and in. They didn't do a flying lap right, the okay. entire race. And they're listed under having not completed any racing wow. laps. They, they did still get points. 17 they, points they got for being yeah. there. Last in class, pretty much showing up points for them. Uh, but they do still lead the championship by five over Gavin Ernstone and and John Morley. What a season those two are having. And I, I did find out a little bit of um, insight. They've got one of the guys from Action Express, Trevor McClure, who's one of the normal ones, running their strategy. So a little bit interesting into why all of a sudden things have turned around this season. They've been playing the points game from Daytona onwards, but only one point back of them It's Mark Wilkins and Michael Lewis in the Hyundai. So very much still championship aspirations alive there. And they look like they were going to have a better weekend, actually. I I mean, I I want to have a quick word about the the Audi drivers, Gavin Ernstone and John Morley. Gavin, relatively inexperienced, did a perfect job at the start of the race. John Morley jumped in. I thought he was stunning. Uh, They had three podiums in a row now. Those guys. They have. Yeah. They have. Um, it's been a very impressive turn from that team. Third, third, and second the race before. So they didn't have great rounds at Sebring at Daytona, but they've been keeping their heads down and recovering ever since. It's been a very stout effort. I thought Mark Wilkins and Michael Lewis might have been a little uh, disappointed um, finishing oh, sure. down the field a little bit in that. In fact, both of the, the Hunters... Um, came to grief within not too very long of each other and that was a fast car again this week and again they were coming off at two podium finishes yeah they were fighting for a podium finish when there was a bit of contact out on track still never figured out who it was with but it basically resulted in that 98 car for michael lewis and mark wilkins overheating to the point where they had to retire it to try and save it it, it is in one piece which is the good news so come lime rock they'll be back and fighting strong but for Mark Wilkins, that's super disappointing. That's his home race, and he was looking getting more championship points. When the championship leaders were out of the race, that yeah. could have been the point swing right there. Now, Shelby Blackstock and Tom O'Gorman, as we said, they got turning up points, which was 17. That put them on 139. How far with, you know, half the race is still to go, how far down can we go and say those guys could still pull back. Max Faulkner and Colin Mullen, they're on 120, Ooh. that's 19 points. Is that uh, too far away? Mason Philippe, I'm... Harry Godsacker in the second of the Hyundais, they're on 122. Is that too far away? Is it Todd Lamb and Brian Henderson in fifth on 126? I... Honestly, John, I would say that Gilsinger and Eversley still aren't even out of it. They're on oh, really? 112. 
but we're only halfway through the season. I mean, we go to Lime Rock next week, then Road America, VIR, WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca, and Road Atlanta. And you think about Eversley and Gilsinger, they've got a really good record at Lime Rock, a really good record at VIR, mm. a good record at Road America, and then a really good record at Road Atlanta. So they're not even technically out of it. it. That's part of the great thing about TCR. We keep having all these cars showing up, which means that the point swing is still very much in play. Mm. Can't disagree uh, with that. That was the Michelin Pilot Challenge, which we raced on Saturday. If we go to the main event, which was, of course, the uh, IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Challenge, which we raced on Sunday, only the second um what we might call normal event. We did um, mid-Ohio, didn't we? And um, and then the two-hour, 40-minute race uh, at uh, at Canadian Tire Motorsport Park, of which two hours, and I mean, spoilers if you haven't seen it yet, but my goodness me, the first two hours, how intense was that? That was extraordinary. You know, people often ask what my favorite events of the year are, and you've got the, the standard answers, the 12 hours of sea ring, the 12 hours of Bathurst. But when I throw in Canadian Tire Motorsport Park, sometimes I get really weird looks from people. That's exactly why. Those first two hours of the race, John, it was nearly impossible to sit down, breathe, do anything, because everywhere you looked, there was some excitement on the track. And really, when we had the red flag, it sort of calmed things down again. But then you had a 15-minute shootout where, again, it's like, okay, well, let's just throw not even a cat amongst the pigeons. Let's throw a wild tiger amongst the pigeons and see what happens. uh, That red flag caused by a very scary-looking single car accident. Nobody else involved with Victor Franzoni losing the car coming up of over the top of two and spinning even before he was halfway down the hill and went in left-hand side first at the bottom of turn two. Now, that's always going to be a big accident. It would have been a much bigger accident a few years ago before the tarmac was put there. It would have been a huge accident before they pushed the wall back there. But a huge amount yeah. of tyres there. But the car did flip over and, and the problem was it got engulfed in the tyres. The tyres did their job. And it stopped him hitting the concrete wall, which, by the way, was hit with enough force or enough, shall we say, enough force was passed through to it to actually knock the concrete wall over. I've seen pictures of that afterwards, which was a bit scary. Um, But I think it I mean, it looked awful because we couldn't see hardly see any of the car. Exactly. Uh, It's always a good thing. You talked a little bit about it in the race that cars are designed to come apart. Hmm. So when there's a really scary incident and you're seeing bits of carbon everywhere that's a good thing that means that the force was distributed through the car and not through the driver um but it was still one of those things that we didn't really know what was going on and it was very scary we're lucky that victor has gone on to social media and told us he's battered and bruised but he's in one piece which is the most important thing no broken bones um but it isn't it just so impressive that he comes into this series his third ever start in imsa and all the people that rallied around him immediately yeah. because they said, hey, he's part of the Mazda family. He's one of us. And you really feel that way even after talking to him for about five minutes. Just a very likable young man. We don't know what's to come for Yunkos. Their next race should be at Road America, which mm. is the first week of August. But the chassis was a complete write-off. So oh, we're was not entirely it? sure when. Yep. We're, we don't know when or if we'll see that car again. It stood up really well. Uh, I, I mean, it looked a mess. But as I said at the time... Um, part of that was it's been in tyres, tyres have been all over it, there's dirty water gets tipped on it, there's bits of grass and dirt and everything. Um, but both doors opened 
and closed and you know all the wheels were roughly pointing in the right direction Delara built a very very strong LMP2 chassis on which that DPI is is based and we should give thanks for that yeah and keep in mind this isn't the first major impact we've seen with the Delara uh, as a Cadillac chassis remember Dane Cameron at Long Beach uh, two years ago Mm. had a big side impact into the car and walked away from it completely unscathed so we know that they build very very strong cars and particularly when you talk about a crash at Canadian Tire Motorsport Park it's not often you have a small one there and as you rightly said that could have been a much bigger crash had it been even 10 years ago that that would have been a different story that we would have been writing in the headlines Uh, as far as the result of the race congratulations to Mazda they win one they win another one and that was this time the turn of Ollie Jarvis and Tristan Yunus I spent a bit of time uh, with Ollie uh, on uh, while we were sitting waiting for the plane on the way home on Sunday night he was delighted of course he was that uh puts them on 188 points tying yeah. with Renger van der Zander and Jordan Taylor for, for, for I suppose joint fourth position in the championship and you know how we were just talking about point swings John this is the fascinating point at one point during the race I said well you know no the Mazda boys they can't come back in the championship I completely reverse my position I eat my words mm. Ollie Jarvis and Tristan Nunez could come out of this year as championship winners they're 19 points off Dean Cameron and Juan Pablo Montoya who have 207 now they will need Montoya and Cameron to stop scoring championship points every round uh, in terms of coming on the podium which they have stood for the last ooh, five races. The last time they came away without a trophy was Sebring. Sebring yeah. So that's going to be pretty tough to come uh, come at. But also, you look at the Felipe car, Felipe Nasser and Luis Felipe Duran, also known as Pipo. They're three points off Montoya and Cameron. So that championship battle rages on as well. A bad day for both of them could see a good swing in terms of what Elio and Ricky are looking for and 10 points behind them. Ollie and Tristan, it's going to be one heck of a knockout, dragout fight in these last three races for the prototypes. Yeah, they put themselves back in uh, in with a uh, shout there. Uh, Jonathan uh, Bomarito uh, in sixth position on his own, of course, because Harry Tinknell hasn't been with him all the time. He's uh, back on 187, so only another point further back for the other Mazda. And we made the point in Michelin Post Race Tech that the track's coming up uh, they don't go to Lime Rock, obviously, so it'll be Road America. They don't go to VIR, then WeatherTech, um, then Road Which Atlanta. Which used to be Mazda Raceway, don't forget. And they've, I mean, they nearly won there last year. In fact, you know, yeah. but for a slight error of judgment by Harry Tinknell, they would have won there uh, last year. But those last three circuits for the prototypes, Road America, WeatherTech Raceway, and Road Atlanta, Mazda, uh, number one, of the form team. Number two, they've got a car that works well on that type of circuit. All right, balance of performance may come into play. But you've got to think that they have they are, if not favourites, you've got to say they are one of the favourites at the next three circuits. Yeah. Well, I've, I've said it before and I'll say it again. John Doonan said, sort of laughing, in the press conference after winning the six hours at the Glen, you know, the next five, or the, the five circuits that we have in the second half of the season really favour the Mazda. And that's exactly what it's proven to be. They won at at, uh, Canadian Tire Motorsport Park. They won at Watkins Glen. Road America, not dissimilar. Okay, at um, WeatherTech Raceway, we have the sort of tire drop-off that we see Mm. at Canadian Tire. So that's similar, too. 
And then Petit Lamar, well, they were second and third last year with a very different platform. So, you know, this year it could wind up looking very red. Mm. Um, as far as uh, P2 is concerned, Matt McMurray uh, is two points ahead of Kyle Masson and Cameron Castles in that battle, which we didn't see really lift off again. Problems for one of the cars. We just really want to see them both have a decent and clear run in the GTs. Let's start with GT Daytona. Um, that's a little bit further apart because uh, Mario Farnbacher and Trent Hindman are on 151, 132 for T-Bell and Frankie Monte Calvo with Robbie Foley and Bill Orbelin getting the win at the weekend. Yeah. And now in a, um, I guess, four-way tie. 123, 123, 123, 123. Yeah, with Andy Lally, John Potter and Patrick Long uh, with that. I mean, that's a great weekend for Bill Orbelin. He picked up a bit, a bit of criticism from one of the Porsche drivers, uh, Lawrence Vantour, I think it was, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. He thought he was trying to help the, the GT Le Mans BMWs. But Foley, I thought, drove brilliantly all weekend. Lap record pace, it was absolutely extraordinary. Really, really is. And it, it warms my heart for those guys because keep in mind, they have had a rough start to the season. DNF at Sebring, DNF at Mid-Ohio. Then they come second last weekend, and then at Canadian Tire Motorsport Park, they finally get that first elusive win. Bill Oberlin, always confused about what class he's racing in. I'm not surprised that he was trying to mix it up with Lawrence Vantour and the Porsche. Uh, but, yeah, it, it's just so good to see Bill get one step closer to that IMSA record, of which he so longs to hold, taking the all-time win away from Scott Pruitt. Well, now he's one behind him. So if he gets two more wins, that would be Mr. Bill Power with that all on his own. Um, just before we move on to GTLM, I've got to say this. I mentioned it in commentary, but if you weren't listening at the weekend, the Daytona prototype times, by the way, getting in towards the sort of lap record, race lap record pace that Mark O'Vernon was doing 11 years ago in a TDI R10 uh, Audi prototype. So <laughs> when people say DPIs aren't proper prototypes, I just say look at the stopwatch because it was extraordinary. The cornering speeds as well now in those DPIs are, are brilliant. Uh, we'll do a bit of IndyCar in a moment because it's Toronto this weekend and you're still in Canada. But let's finish up with GT LM and the 154th win on the trot for um, <laughs> for for Porsche. It's been an extraordinary uh, run. Is that's five on the bounce for them now? Is it? Yep. Yeah, it is. The only one that they didn't win was Daytona, which was red flag. So mm. you could argue that they could have six wins in a row. Yeah, true enough. Um, they've not always had the fastest car, but my goodness, they know how to maximise their race pace. It's now four points the gap between Earl Bamba, Lawrence Vanto and their teammates, Nick Tandy and Patrick Pelier. But lurking in behind there, and another good, uh, another good result this weekend would have made this a bit closer, but the Corvettes were both off the pace, but Jan Magnussen Antonio Garcia, only seven points further back from the second of the Porsche crew. So I had a long chat with um, the with Ollie Gavin, actually, and he says, and I know this is an unpopular view, but he says it's not all down to the BOP. They really didn't get the handle on their tyres this weekend, and they made a couple of decisions that sent them in the wrong direction, and they feel they will have something coming back in the next round at Lime Rock. They've always been good at Lime Rock. Uh, after that, it's Conor de Filippi on his own uh, in, in the fourth spot. Then Dirk Muller 
on his own then Ryan Briscoe and Richard Westbrook together ahead of the, of the BMW John Edwards and Yassi Cron. BMW looked good again this weekend they found a, a bit of pace in the race which I think was probably the, the two most surprising things for me was the lack of pace of the Ford and the uh, Corvette and the finding of the pace um, from RLL Rehan Letterman Lanigan and the BMWs completely agree with that John uh, the thing going into Lime Rock that has me the most excited about GTLM though we're riding the wave of Porsche how long can they keep mm. this going they won the race two years ago with the new RSR so they have already a race win with the current car and the current specification at Lime Rock you look at Corvette they feel like they're going to get something back as you just said with Ollie Gowan the site of their 100th win in 2016 as a program. Well, now they're looking for win one, number 100 on American soil. How poetic would that be? BMW starting to find form. This is their home race at Connecticut. This is the one that they all want to win year on year. And of course, Ford, it was Joey Hand and Dirk Mueller who took the win at Lime Rock 12 months ago. So yeah. everybody has a good argument as to why they should win the race. But it's Lime Rock. You don't just get given the win because you deserve it. You do it because you outlast everybody else. It was funny, actually, because Tony uh, Vaylander was there in the lounge with us on Sunday. And everybody said, well, I don't really like Lime Rock. I'm not that kind of... And Tony said, oh, I really like Lime Rock. And I said, Tony, wasn't that the <laughs> first event you ever did? And he said, yes. He said, do you remember what happened? I said, yeah, you, plant, you planted the car on pole position, having had little time behind the wheel. And then you were going really well. And then the car got written off when you got pushed off at the final corner. He went... Yeah, I do remember that. <laughs> but he, st- he still likes the place. Um, that's a couple of weeks' time, and obviously we'll have that live coverage. Remember, that's a Saturday for race for both Michelin Pilot and for WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. Michelin Pilot uh, live, free, in sound and vision, no blocks, no brakes. And WeatherTech, of course, will have every session live uh, on the radio, and depending where you are, you might be able to watch it as well. Tim Gray, before we go on any further. Uh, well, IMSA have had their little trip to Canada. Yep. And uh, now it's IndyCar's turn. It the, is. Uh, it used to be the Molson IndyCar Grand Prix of Toronto, but isn't sponsored by Molson anymore. Uh, but the Toronto Grand Prix this weekend, and that means uh, a great excuse for James Hinchcliffe to be everywhere. Uh, every newspaper and every website seems to have an interview with uh, James Hinchcliffe, one where he's talking about how much work he does with charity, one about how much he's inspired by Robert Wicken's recovery, one where he's talking about scuba diving, one where he's talking about his uh, collection of antique cigarette lighters. You know, that's so funny, Tim, because I'm in Canada. Uh, James has a cottage not too far away from here, and yet I never see or hear about him. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, I mean, he's not in the championship hunt at the moment. Ninth in points position, 216 points, virtually 200 points away from the man at the top, Joseph Newgarden, Jojo and Alexandra Rossi. Uh, just seven points apart, and then yeah. another 50 points or so back to Simon Pagino. 60 points back to Pagino. Uh, 60 points, yeah, to Pagino. Uh yeah, three four uh, one to four oh two. Four? Yes, yeah, sorry, yeah, three nine five. I was looking after three oh, yeah, four yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. And then three oh eight for Scott Dixon, two nine four for Will Power. Is it between Newgarten and Alexander Rossi for the title this year, Shea? I hope not. Um it, Toronto's always an interesting one. This is the thirty fifth running of the race on the streets of Toronto and traditionally it's been a good indication of who's going to go on to win the championship six out of the last 10 years the driver who's won the race has gone on to claim the championship so typically if you do well here it's it's a good omen 
And Joseph Newgarden has won on the streets of Toronto before. So if he wins this year, then I think I might go put a little bit of money on him coming home with the championship. But Simon is just so intriguing because Pagano has really had mm-hmm. a season of up and downs. He started off so badly and then turned everything around in the month of May. Well, they're pretty much coming off of their summer break. And now things are going to resume in anger for IndyCar. I mean, they're, they're Toronto this weekend, Iowa the weekend after, and Mid-Ohio the week after that. So it really picks up again. I I wouldn't count Simon out just yet. Um, and, I mean, how can you ever count out Scott Dixon? Never, yeah, never. He's, he's 100 points down on Joseph Newgarden, but it's Scott Dixon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's Rossi, though, at the moment. He's got the momentum. He's coming off, what, two, three good results. Um, in fact, um, he did pretty well on, on Belle Isle. He had two decent results there. Didn't do too badly at Indy. Um, but the last couple of races, he's really come on form again. Another victory at Road America. Last time out, all right, very different circuit. But there's a steely determination in Alexander Rossi, which doesn't necessarily rub everybody up the right way. That he's got his, he's got his non-fans. He's got his haters uh, in in the paddock and indeed in the in the fan base. But you you can't. However, he's getting the results. He's carving these results out. Yeah, I mean. I'm, I'm not going to pretend to be an Alexander Rossi fan. I would much rather, if it comes down between him and Joseph Newgarden, see JoJo win the championship, but that's just personal preference. At Toronto, Rossi does not have the best record. He's raced there three times. He's been 16th, 8th, and 2nd, uh, second coming back in 2017. So it really depends on what form he's in as to how he can approach that track. And he did get that famous win at Long Beach a couple of years ago now, which was very impressive. That's a hard race. Toronto is not as physical, arguably, but it is an 85-lap race. It's not the easiest thing to come off of a little bit of a break. It could work one of two ways. Either he comes off of the break with this newfound momentum after, simply put, dominating Road America. I mean, nobody was even in his class of racing and goes on to win, or the break works against him. And it's going to be interesting to see how he processes that uh, position because he's never been as good right now as he is. Uh, He's been as high up in the championship going into the break, but he's never had the sort of, (sighs) I don't even know the word fanfare isn't right, but people noticing him and the big domino for next year's contract really is where does Alexander Rossi go? That's going to be the key to silly season. Mm. Rossi holds a lot of cards in his hand right now, and how he can come off of that little bit of a period where he's had time to think about it, that's going to shape the rest of his championship. Cheer, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, Time is rapidly catching up with us. That's all we've got time for. Remember, this weekend, Saturday, we're still not having a weekend off. More racing for you. Uh, Saturday, check the website for details www.radio-show.co.uk it is VLN uh, Johnny Palmer and me uh, doing the race call for you there thanks to all our guests this evening Uh, and is the time for you to say anything Tim goodbye This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your 